0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Esposito. you ready for this On WCPT 820.
1: Hey, thanks for joining me this Wednesday, January 31st. I am so glad you are here. There is, as I say this every day, there's a lot going on, only because, you know what? There's a lot going on. Um, there's been a lot of... Um, a lot of anxiousness and anger and <sighs> protest today at Chicago City Council meeting. There are, today's the day they were supposed to vote on the resolution uh, to support a ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, Our good friend Alderman Raymond Lopez also wanted a resolution calling for the immediate and unconditional release of hostages and return of the bodies of those killed on October 7th. Um, There has also been a lot of controversy over this idea that when a cop is charged with wrongdoing and has a hearing, whether or not those hearings should be open meetings. Um, the mayor supports that. Obviously, the fraternal order of police does not support it. There has been much sturm and drang at the city council today. Uh, tomorrow we are going to be chatting with, um, Alderman Lopez, who can, um, who can um, walk us through everything that happened? There's also been, you know, I understand wanting security. I do. And they've now, you know, the people who come to city council meetings, they now, the gallery is now behind glass, which, you know, if the, in the interest of safety, if that's necessary, so be it. But apparently, um, it's also been very difficult for reporters who've covered City Hall for years uh, to get in. And there is some new rule that, um, you know, a lot of times reporters will bring a backpack. You know, it's got their notebooks. It's got, you know, if they have a handheld uh, recorder when they do an interview. And uh, apparently, there's been a ban on backpacks Um so in the interest of safety and security, some of these things make sense. Uh, it's possible that some of these things have gone a little too far. But, you know, this is I don't know how old I don't know how old you are, but this is kind of starting to remind me. Remember council wars? Remember that? When people were shouting and screaming, Alderman Dick Mell standing on top of a desk. Yelling at his fellow council members. And, you know, the weirdest thing, and I said this when I talked to Raymond Lopez last week, if everybody's allowed to have an opinion and weigh in on an issue, and if you're uh, an elected official, maybe you feel that as somebody who represents voters that you have to, your voice has to be heard over other voices. So... Schedule a press conference, write up a white paper, write an op-ed. I don't understand why we need to waste time. You know, whether this resolution to ask for a ceasefire, whether it passes or not, it is meaningless. It's, it has no power. It is a waste of time that the elected alders of the city of Chicago could be using to work on other issues. Yes, it's a real hot button issue. And yes, everybody wants to weigh in. And yes, legislators want their voters to know where they stand. There's lots of ways to do that. That doesn't take up time. That is set aside for passing ordinances. (sighs) Okay, I have said my piece. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a position. I'm not saying it's wrong to want to publicize that position. I'm just saying that perhaps there are better venues than taking up half the morning of a Chicago City Council meeting to argue about something that has no power anyway. We like green. We like blue. We like green. We like blue. Okay, Handle that on your own time, folks. And. You know, hold a press conference. Any of these alders could hold a press conference and talk about, you know, this issue and how they feel about it. Great. Great. But I've always thought of city council as a place where we do the business of the city. Silly me. Silly old-fashioned girl. Um, Rather than people playing to the crowd. Um, Steve's calling in from the Gold Coast. Hey, Steve, what do you want to talk about this morning?
2: Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, uh, this isn't the first time that this sort of thing happens in political science. We call it a non-issue issue when a governmental body that has no power to address an issue or to impact it decides to take it up
3: mm-hmm. as if,
2: you know, they, they, they had that capacity. Yeah, In the 1970s, you know, places like Berkeley, California would have these debates and they would talk about uh, things like n- declaring a nuclear-free zone for the city. Long debates, discussions, this sort of thing, as if somehow that was going to impact Soviet policy. Oh, well, Berkeley declared itself a non-nuclear zone, so we're not yeah. going to hit them mm-hmm. in case of a nuclear war. I mean, you know, this, uh, I understand that people are passionate about things, but this is not the venue. This is not the place. The city of Chicago has enough issues that it needs to address. Yeah. Uh, so you're, if you want to, you know, there's this it, whole issue you about Congress, you how, uh,
1: yeah, how disciplinary hearings, um, should be handled for cops. Now, that's something that is a topic of discussion exactly. that should be in the city council. What, what the Biden exactly. administration is or isn't doing, um, to affect, um, armed conflict an ocean away. I see that as a waste of time. I'm sorry. And I'm not denigrating the fact that people want to let their voices be heard. That's fine. I'm simply saying there are better venues. There are more appropriate venues.
2: Absolutely. And if you're voting for an alderman or a mayor or anybody else at the county or state level based on this issue, then you are misguided. And Mm -hmm. it's not their role. They're not making that policy. So, uh, I, so I I stand with you with regard to people wanting to express themselves, but wrong venue, wrong time, wrong place. We have other things we need to address.
1: Yeah, thank you for that, Steve. Um, I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear your thoughts on that subject because sometimes I feel like I'm a lone voice in the wilderness. Um, one other quick thing that I want to, well, you, I'm sure you've all heard about this. I'm sure we're going to be hearing about this more and more and more and more and more as time goes on, as we get closer and closer to the Super Bowl. <sighs> Fox News, far right, etc., and so forth. They are up in arms about Taylor Swift. Oh, <gasps> Taylor Swift. And the, the latest—I was talking about this yesterday. The latest conspiracy theory is that the uh, Super Bowl is going to be rigged. Because, okay, what's the reason why the Super Bowl is rigged? And I and I can't remember if there—it's rigged so that Kansas City wins or loses. But it's all—it's tied with the deep state, and I'm not quite sure. How Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift are supposed to benefit from the Super Bowl being rigged. I seem to have lost my conspiracy theory train of thought here. Um But you know why the right is really worried is because Taylor Swift has a lot of power. You know, Um, w- um one of the. Uh, Fox was doing an interview with, uh, Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn, who was very careful in her comments about Taylor Swift because she knows how powerful Taylor Swift is. And Taylor Swift has in the past come out against, she doesn't support Marsha Blackburn, but Marsha Blackburn knows, um, that trashing her openly is a very bad idea. And she said that there was a, some survey done in, I don't know who did it. Um, I don't even know if it's accurate, but something like 18 percent of the people who follow Taylor Swift said that they would vote. However, she tells them to vote. Well, good for them. Uh, There was another conversation on Fox. I want to share with you right now about Taylor Swift. And we're going to hear so much more about this. And I'm going to try to not bring it to you every time it happens. But here's just one for the road. Listen to this.
4: We have had enough of Taylor Swift for now, but here's the facts. Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl and now there's an online plea circulating that is begging people to become Niners fans for the next two weeks. just <laughs> So it doesn't raise Travis Kelsey, a.k.a. Mr. Pfizer's star power, along with, of course, Taylor Swift, because it is so scary. There was a recent poll. One fifth of Taylor Swift fans said they would back whichever candidate that she endorsed. You know, let's be honest, a lot of her fan base are 15 year old girls who can't vote anyways. A lot of the others are already liberal women who would support the DNC no matter what. But there's a lot of other people who need to be careful because she doesn't do what she says. Like, for example, the other day, yesterday, she flew private from New York City to Baltimore. Yet she constantly talks
1: about climate change. So just please don't believe everything Taylor Swift says. We're all begging you. Oh, my God. Can you believe that? A woman who was racing to get to her boyfriend's side and has more money than God flew private? Oh, well, there you go. She's just such a phony. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with real news right after this.
0: This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: Chicago Tribune's Gregory Pratt posted a letter to Alden Global Capital, explaining why at the Tribune and journalists at Alden Capital newspapers around the country, that there is going to be a 24-hour strike tomorrow. We believe in the awesome power of the First Amendment and its importance to the public. Our work keeps citizens informed about local government and holds political leaders accountable for their words and deeds. In our in your time owning Tribune newspapers across the country, you've shrunk the staff by dozens, cut freelancer budgets and limited access to critical information. You are trying to take away our 401k match. You attacked our health care. You don't prioritize prioritize equity. Tomorrow, we are being asked not to buy the Tribune, not to read the Tribune, whether in its print or digital form. And uh, I, for one, am going to shut down my Chicago Tribune tab so I don't have to rely on my memory uh, to do this for the 24-hour strike. Gregory Pratt from the Tribune joins us now to talk about who's doing this and why. Gregory, thank you so much for taking time out of a crazy day to talk with us.
3: Thank you, and thank you for closing the tab tomorrow. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Actually, I'll probably close it today because, you know, <laughs> I don't want to trust my memory to have to remember to do it tomorrow. Um, so tell me, tell all of our listeners who is doing this and why. Well,
3: it's the Chicago Tribune, the page designers who design uh, all the newspapers across the country and um, about seven different big newspaper groups uh, in the Tribune Uh, Family that are owned by all of them. And the reason is that we have a bad owner that has been screwing newspapers across the country for years. They've refused to come to the table and give us a fair offer, and we're not going to sit back and let them tear up our community and and damage our newsroom without a big, nasty fight.
1: You guys have been working without a contract, is that correct?
3: Yeah, for about uh, six years. Uh, we, wow. we Now, it's really about five years because the first year involved a lot of bureaucratic organizing type of stuff. But we've been at the table for more than five years talking to these goons, and they refuse to uh, make good-faith offers. They refuse to have honest discussions. I mean, they just keep messing around. And, you know, um, we're not coming to the table asking them, hey, give us a million-dollar salary a year, although every single one of our reporters would deserve that. Uh, we're asking for reasonable wages, and they're coming back with nonsense like we're going to take away your 401k match, which is a total non-starter.
1: You know, Jay Rosen, who's a media critic out of New York, said that companies like Alden Global that they're really not they're not in the interest of supporting communities. They're really not even in the newspaper business. They see an asset that is in trouble. And buy it on the cheap and then figure out how to squeeze every last remaining drop of revenue out of it before finally basically just discarding the hulk, uh, the husk that is left. S- Does it feel like that to you?
3: Yeah, and that's why they call them the destroyer of newspapers and they compare them to vampires. And, and I want to, on a big picture, the Tribune is still somehow remarkably a pretty strong paper that does some good work. Obviously, we're not what we were 20 years ago when, when the Tribune was a license to print money. But, um, but that's, that's exactly what all the global capital does. And it's really remarkable, because we have had a string of bad owners dating back to 2008, and now we're at the absolute worst of the potential owners in terms of Alden Global Capital. And these are people, they don't care about Chicago, they don't care about Allentown, they don't care about civic engagement. They might as well be heroin dealers for all the good that they think about doing for society.
1: Um, Have you gotten any response from anyone at Alden?
3: No, I'm sure that they're that they're spending their day today counting their money and trying to figure out if they can find scab workers. They, they're they're remarkably unresponsive at the table, and you know that's a big part of why uh, we're cocking our fists and punching them in the nose.
1: No, you're going to have a rally tomorrow. Talk to me about that.
3: So, yeah, we're going to have uh, the Tribune newsroom. I think it's 76 members of our unit are going to be down there. We're going to have people from other units uh, supporting us. There's going to be walkouts uh, across the country, but we're going to be down there, I think, from 9 to 12 at 560 West Grand Freedom Center to stand up and fight and and, uh, let them hear us.
1: I know just a few minutes ago you published – a letter of support from former Tribune columnists. Tell me who's gotten in touch and, and summarize what they wanted to say.
3: So, um, you know, Mary Sweet, Dallin Glanton, and Rex Hupke, Heidi, Heidi Stevens and Eric Zorn wrote a statement just talking about how they remain with us in spirit. And they were always such important um you know those people um are very well known to your readers to your listeners and to people around chicago and they were always people who stood with um the young reporters the the less powerful reporters the people who are still learning and don't have as much stroke and they always put their influence Behind their coworkers, and so we're tremendously grateful that they continue to support us, and and we hope that uh, that they will follow, and that um, your listeners and people in Chicago will follow their influence and yours, and not engage with the paper tomorrow.
1: Uh, in addition to not engaging with the paper tomorrow, what else can my listeners do to support you?
3: we have a uh, you know on Twi- on uh, x uh aka twitter uh there the the ct guild which is uh C T G U I L D account which is a union account we we encourage people to send letters to the company i believe we have a link where you can sign a petition and, and express your support i think those are important i think i think uh sending a message to the paper to editors to any of those uh to that petition is good you know if people can come down and um uh celebrate feels like the wrong word but in a way it is celebrate the workers of the tribune by coming with us and meeting us down there tomorrow morning uh they're all welcome
1: i uh, just logged into i follow uh the chicago tribune guild at ct guild as gregory said um and it says here is how you can show your solidarity don't click on stories at com. Don't engage with TRIB social media accounts. Do not open and engage with Chicago Tribune emails and news alerts. Respect our picket line by not crossing the clicket line. Um, So that's how we can be supportive of this. But it, it sounds like just as Alden Global Capital has ignored you at the bargaining table, so far they seem to be trying to ignore this work action do you have any any hope that this is going to get through to them?
3: I do, and the reason for that is is this is this is a pretty remarkable escalation. Think about the fact that we are organizing about 240 journalists across the country within the same company, including the page designers. I mean, this is not going to be easy for them. And the message that I share with them is that uh, we're doing this tomorrow, and we can and we will escalate. And us escalating is a real threat to their bottom line, which is the only thing that these people care about. Yeah. And so, and so um, you know, we'll punch them in the wallet if we have to punch them in the wallet over and over again. We're hoping that they see the uh, remarkable unity that we're going to have on display tomorrow and understand that we are serious and that, that this is not something that they can ostrich and put their head down and ignore.
1: I, I hope that's true. You mentioned editors. Are they considered management or are they part of the guild? So
3: some of the editors at the paper are management and some of them are guilds. Um, you know, if it were, if it was up to me, everybody would eat something disagreeable tonight and not be able to work tomorrow. But, <laughs> uh, you know, and come down with uh, uh, what they call the blue flu, I guess. But um, you know, it, it's it's a uh, you know, um, there are some people over there in tough spots. I have some some pity for them, but you know what? The editors and and I and we love. A lot of our newsroom editors, including some of the management folks, uh, don't let them hear me say that. Um, but, you know, they cannot replace the reporters. The yep. editor's an editor and the reporter's a reporter.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, just as a little postscript, I also want you to know I have pre ordered your book. Gregory Pratt has a book coming out, I think, April 2nd called The City is Up for Grabs. How Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot Led and Lost a City in Crisis. Um, And you can pre-order that book by Gregory Pratt right now. Um, I wish you all the best tomorrow. Um, I will be there in spirit.
3: I I very much appreciate it, and uh, it's always my pleasure to be on here. And uh, I hope to be back to talk about the lovely stories in the book, too.
1: Wonderful. Yes, we will definitely plan on that. Uh, Gregory Pratt with the Chicago Tribune. There's going to be a job action tomorrow, 24 hour strike. Don't click, don't read, don't interact with Chicago Tribune, um, social media. We're going to take a break and be back with more after this.
0: This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 a.m., WCPT, Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: Oh, man, you know what? I say we call it a day. It's 2.30. We've already had more news than any Any human being um, can be expected to uh, to talk about. And. Um, um, I, you know, I have. Oh, Andy. uh, They sent me two different numbers for Philip. Uh, Try the same number you've got only ending in four zero seven nine. They wrote four seven four zero seven nine and four zero four zero seven eight. I try seven nine. Um. You know, I've told you this before, that sometimes I book people just because I think they've done some interesting work and I want to talk to them. And then all of a sudden, the day of their interview, (laughs) the interview becomes so much more timely because of events happening that I could never in my wildest dreams have foreseen. Well, this is one of those days. (laughs) I reached out to the people at Washington Monthly, I don't know, a week or so ago. Because in the current issue of the Washington Monthly magazine, there's an article by Philip Longman. And it is about how fighting monopoly can save journalism. This on the day before the Chicago Tribune reporters and Alden Global Capital journalists from around the country are calling a 24-hour strike um, you know, Alden Capital has refused to give the Tribune Guild members a new contract. They have been trying to negotiate that for five years now. Um, they are making cuts. And um, tomorrow, the newspaper, the people who really write the newspaper are walking out. There's going to be a rally at 560 uh, West Grand tomorrow between nine and noon. Um, Tribune columnists Eric Zorn, Heidi Stevens, Rex Hupke have all written um, a letter of support uh, to try to get Alden Global to wake up and um, understand that this isn't just a property that we're going to squeeze everything out of and then sell for parts, but local newspapers perform A hugely important role because a lot of times it takes a local newspaper to have the deep pockets to do the kind of investigative stuff that really holds government to account and politicians to account. So um, tomorrow, 24 hour strike um, by Alden Global Capital journalists around the country, and we hope you will support it. So, again, dovetails with this article written by Philip Longman, um, who joins us now. Philip, I had no idea this was going to be as uh, the idea of how to save journalism was going to be quite as timely as it has turned out to be here in the Chicago area. How are you, Philip?
5: I'm doing okay. I'm still standing, despite all the terrible things that are happening in journalism.
1: uh, Yeah. So.
5: They are kind of crescendoing this
1: week. Yeah, Yeah, Really? They really do seem to be. Um, You write, uh, or the subtitle of the article is, the collapse of the news industry is not an inevitable consequence of technology or market forces. It's the result of policy mistakes over the past 40 years that the Biden administration is already taking measures to fix. Talk about Mm -hmm. those policy mistakes and the effect they've had.
5: Well, throughout American history, uh, we have had a long tradition of using public policy, public law to put a brake on monopolization of the information environment. So, uh, for example, when the Telegraph came along, uh, we passed laws that made sure that you couldn't simultaneously own a, a Telegraph company, a newspaper, an advertising company, a publishing company, et cetera uh when the telephone came along we had rules in place laws in place to make sure that the telephone company couldn't um surveil your uh, wiretap your your calls sell that information that they gathered to marketers um and then also get into the business of being themselves publishers uh if you, if you wanted to be a telephone company you stayed a telephone company um and then through regulation and antitrust Enforcement, we managed to um, contain the monopolization of information. It wasn't perfect by any means. Um, we also did this uh, through a, a particular mechanism of advertising-supported journalism. Right, the founding fathers and many other people, you know, were wary of the government being the one that controlled the financing of the media for mm-hmm. what I hope are obvious reasons. Right. Um, there were also problems with a uh, media that that relied entirely on subscriptions, because the, the great mass of people in a democracy are not able or willing to pay the actual cost of gathering the kind of civic-minded journalism that they need to perform their duties as citizens in a democracy. So, our imperfect. But but workable solution was to have a, an advertising supported media system uh, w- w- with government playing a strong role in putting checks and balances on on concentrated ownership and concentrated control. Um, and this, this system lasted you know, uh, through the age of radio, through the age of television. Um, and you can get into examples of how that worked, and then and, and, and even into the early days of the internet. Um, but through uh, careless uh, legislation and uh, a, a, a kind of neoliberal abandonment of antitrust enforcement, of, of regulation generally, we, we allowed for the, the growth of this new kind of thing that the world has never seen before, which is these, these companies like Google and Facebook that control the absolute vital communication infrastructure of our time. Um, but which are subject to none of the, of, the, of the constraints that we used in the past against telephone companies, television companies, radio companies, to ensure that they don't get into adjacent lines of business and monopolize everything up and down the whole value change of, of journalism. So what's happened in a nutshell is, is those two companies particularly have managed to monopolize the buying and selling of advertising not just on their own platforms, but on other platforms. So if you are a marketer and you want to buy an ad on, uh, I don't know, let's say Rolling Stone magazine, right, uh, digital publication, um, you have to go through Google. Google actually controls the the exchanges. They're called ad tech exchanges on which um, ads are, are sold and traded. And they're trading on their own account in those in those um, exchanges because Google, among other things, is a publisher. Um, you know, they own you know, Yahoo, I mean, um, YouTube and, and many other publications, right? And, uh, and they sell ads on those publications. But they also take a middleman's finder fee on everything else. And so it's gotten to the point now where uh, even ads that never appear on Google, you um, uh, wind up. Google gets about thirty percent of the ad revenue.
1: Wait that, a minute. How is that, that possible? You say, Did you just say um, that ads that don't yeah, even yeah. explain? I'm sorry. That's an interesting model.
5: Yeah, yeah. It's there's nothing. There's nothing. Like, it's hard to even come up with uh, analogies. It's sort of like the New York Stock Exchange was itself trading in stocks or something, right? <laughs> yeah. They, they, they own. They own the market. In which they trade uh, their own ads space, right, and and the ads of others, and not only own it but monopolize it. So, uh, so that's how come they were able to to get about thirty cents on the dollar for every every piece of digital advertising that that uh, on the planet, right? They they share this to some extent with with uh, Facebook and Amazon, but between the three of them, they got almost all of it. And so, all this money that would otherwise be going to support journalism, the traditional source or the traditional means of financing the cost of news gathering, which was advertising revenue, now has been largely siphoned off into the into the coffers of these three platform monopolies. And meanwhile, of course, they're also stealing much of the intellectual property of, that produced by journalists you know and just reproduce just flat out stealing it mm-hmm. um and and publishing it on their own so between those two sources of <laughs> lost revenue um we have the crisis in journalism and that's why i say this isn't really about uh, anything about digital technology per se, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of publications, you know, thrived in the in the aughts in the early Internet days, um, you know, by selling banner ads. And, you know, it was a lively media it existed in the in the early 2000s and stuff. But gradually uh, that all got choked off. So BuzzFeed and, and Huffington Post and and. Any number of digital publications, right, are dying on the vine now. In just the last month or so, we've had a whole bunch of other, like, really innovative, digitally advanced products that would have been economically viable before these uh, ad tech monopolies are suddenly are finding that they're not. So that's the root cause. Of what's going on here. Um, It's not generational change. It's not technology change, nothing inherent in the nature of digital technology. But you've got, you know, the people that produce the journalism and and, and invest the money in creating the journalism are not getting the rewards of journalism. Mm -hmm. And so they're slowly dying on the vine. That's it.
1: And that's really, it's, re- that is a really interesting explanation because I would have been not understanding, you know, how Google at all have siphoned off this ad revenue. I would have said, well, you know, they're just not, uh, they, they should have a better website. That's the problem, Philip. Mm-hmm. They don't have a good enough website.
5: Yes. Well, uh, you know, it, many people believe that, and one reason is because the media itself is doing a very poor job of explaining what's going on to their own industry. I, I, I'm just flabbergasted at how, you know, Journalists who are supposed to be people who are very good at like gathering up new information quickly and processing it, you know, don't seem to be able to get it through their heads. What is killing their own business? Um, So just in the last week or so, we've had these huge roundup articles in The New York Times and The Washington Post and Atlantic Monthly, you know, bewailing the, the decline of journalism that don't even mention, right, this monopoly problem. And just in case you think that I'm making this up, right, while we're speaking and while I say the Biden administration is doing something about that, the Department of Justice has brought an epic antitrust case against Google for its mon- illegal monopolistic behavior in these ad tech markets. That trial is going to start in the spring. And some people have compared this to the you know, the standard oil uh, antitrust suit that brought dumped on the John D. Rockefeller's. Uh, empire. In some ways, it's bigger because information is more important than oil in this economy. So, you know, other people understand it. The Department of Justice gets it. Um, But somehow many journalists don't. Um, They think, oh, it's because people are too tired of the news or something other, some other thing.
1: Philip, I'd like you to talk (laughs) a little bit more about that, because I've seen the headlines. You know, DOJ brings antitrust suit against Google. And I'm not A business reporter so i just assumed it was something businessy and my eyes kind of glazed over and Mm -hmm. i moved on to the next to the next article i had no Mm -hmm. idea that that what the impact of this was and what the um what the many layers of this effort was so again uh give me kind of a an intro 101 um primer on this antitrust lawsuit and why they're bringing it and what we can hope will happen. Mm-hmm.
5: Okay. Well, first of all, to be clear, there's two of them. The Department of Justice has one that was started during the Trump administration, but has now reached maturity, and it's targeting Google's illegal, abusive use of its search engines in a monopolizing advertising revenue that appears through its search search Google search Um, the other one um, that has its origins in the Biden administration and it's I think ultimately much more consequential I think this suit I'm about to describe could, could literally just totally transform our entire information environment almost overnight because what it says is that this entire business model that I've been describing to you where Google is simultaneously straddling all these different levels of the information environment, right? It's a publisher, it's a communication infrastructure company, it's an advertising company, it's all these different things. And not only on top of everything else, they actually own the market, not just monopolize the market, own the market on which... uh digital ads are bought and sold. And that is the ultimate source of their monopoly power and the ultimate reason why all these other media properties are dying on the vine. And so if if the result of that trial is to to say to Google, you're gonna have to get out of the ad tech business. You're gonna have to divest yourself from that. Um, That's gonna be an entirely new world. Um, It's gonna totally rebalance power within these markets So that publishers and journalists, you know, have a chance of standing up to these concentrated power of these platform monopolies. Um, These platform monopolies have a combination of powers that we've never had before in 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 history. Right. They because they're they have all the all the benefits of being a publisher in the sense that. They can discriminate against anybody they want when it comes to what goes on their pages, so to speak, right? Uh Just like a newspaper doesn't have to publish your article just because you sent them the article. They have the privilege of not publish as well as publish. But what a publisher also has is the responsibility, liability for anything that's libelous or illegal that they publish, including, for example, a letter to the editor. If the, if the Chicago Tribune passed, uh, publishes a letter to the editor that, that contains a libel, the paper itself is is subject to libel, right? So, but with Google and Facebook, they have they have the best of both worlds. Like when third party people use their platforms to say to to. to commit uh illegal acts you know through um libels or or illegal forms of hate speech and other things like that they have no they have no liability for it at all right <laughs> um wow. and yet they have the ability yeah but and yet they have the ability to throw anybody off their platform that they like and they do you know just like a publisher so it's like this this combination of powers no corporations in America have ever had let alone media corporations and then of course also they 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 have now branched into all these other uh vertical um lines of business so you know, Google and, and Amazon, you know, are are major owners of the, the literal infrastructure, the, the the server farms on which the internet resides. They own that, right? They own they own massive publishing companies, they own massive advertising companies, and and, and all other kinds of rails. So it's kind of like in the nineteenth century, you know, as if it was bad enough in the nineteenth century when if you owned a a small business, you needed. You were often at the mercy of a single railroad to get materials to your business, your, your raw materials in, and and the same railroad controlled everything that went out of your business, right? And mm-hmm. that's why we we long ago realized you know we cannot have owners of essential infrastructure um, allowed to just uh, dis- discriminate at will against different users of that infrastructure that infrastructure has to be neutral and we did that with railroads and we did that with telegraphs and we did that with telephones and radio and but when the internet came along we created this new monster uh thing um that's that's just combines all these powers into one super corporation and so uh that has to be unraveled um but like I say, it's it's not all darkness because we have this lawsuit that's coming. Many people think there's really strong grounds for them prevailing on this lawsuit because uh, these these kind of business practices so so obviously uh, violate the spirit and intention of Congress when it passed and, uh, our various antitrust laws. So,
1: so is this? Yeah, this this second antitrust lawsuit, which sounds like the one that's most important to journalism, how long do you think, because I know sometimes the legal system moves in its own sort of time zone, how long Mm -hmm. till we would get a verdict on this? And is it going to be one of those things where even once we have a verdict, um, there's going to be appeal after appeal after appeal, so that if there's ever a resolution, it probably won't come in my lifetime, Philip?
5: (laughs) Uh, well, I think there's reason to be more optimistic than that. I mean, just oh, last week, so. the administration administration successfully blocked the first airline merger in 40 years. You know, because my administration's got religion on antitrust, and they using the laws that they have, and they 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 prevented the merger of, of JetBlue and Spirit Airlines, and that's in a historical context. Quite amazing that they they pull that off. So they may pull this one off, even if they don't totally pull it off. Oftentimes, just by bringing the suit and and putting these companies on notice, it changes their behavior. You know, so for example, Microsoft. Some people remember. You know, in the late 90s, there was a gigantic suit against Microsoft. And ultimately, when the Bush administration came in in 2000, they did, kind of walked away from that suit, even though the government had prevailed. But it changed Microsoft's behavior, and it, it made them abandon many of their most predatory behavior. And ironically, one of the benefits, in quotes, that came from that is that it opened up the space for these new star companies with names like Google and <clears> Facebook <throat> to get into that space, right? The government like cleared away the monopoly that was otherwise blocking access to the, you know, through the Internet browsers to the what we today call Internet 2.0. Right. Um, So, again, I just in short, even even if they don't win instantly, I just just the fact of the suit is is really big news and a huge departure from what went before. Um, There's also, also the chance for Congress to fix a lot of this. And we don't need to wait for the courts to do it, right? Um, And ironically, on this subject, there's a weird harmonic convergence between left and right. Um, (laughs) The right has different reasons for wanting to clip the powers of the. Of the uh, platform monopolies, um, you know they're upset that people they like, like Alex Jones, get deplatformed. All right, um, but the left has all other kinds of reasons why they want to get uh, control of the, these platforms because, you know, as we've seen, they've become vectors for Russian propaganda, for all kinds of hate speech and craziness, and and also they're just so powerful now. In, in their in their market share and in their in their capitalization that they buy and sell politicians at will. You, can, you just can't have corporations this big and this dominant and expect to have a functioning democracy. So across the political spectrum, there's people that are training their sites on these platforms. Um, and I think I think even if for different reasons we do it. we may do it.
1: Yeah. yeah. um but with the atmosphere that is going to exist on Capitol Hill, at least until the 2024 election. Um Do you think, even if there is wild bipartisan support for doing this, for different reasons, that anybody is going to do that? Because, you know, the rule now is don't give Joe Biden any kind of a win. Mm-hmm. So the, but don't do anything on a bipartisan um way just so that, you know, the Democrats can claim any kind of victory on anything. Realistically, do you think anybody is going to... Um, put together a bipartisan measure in the next year, at least?
5: Uh, Well, realistically, we've got bills in Congress now that would do some of this, but would they pass in the next Uh year? No, I I wish I could say yes, but I doubt it. Um, So, you know, part of of the struggle here, the media itself has to tell this story, Uh right? We have to change public opinion, Right. (laughs) And of course it gets harder and harder because these various corporations now control all these channels of communication, <laughs> yeah. right? So I can turn people on and off, right? You yeah, know, so, um, uh, so, you know, better that we do it sooner than later because eventually you just get yourself in an information environment where the most outspoken, articulate critics can't be heard because yeah. the guys who control the levers say, no, no, not for you today. So, um, but I, I think, I I am internal optimist. Some days I got off uh, on the wrong side of the bed and I'm not so (laughs) optimistic. But I I, I think I think in the in the medium term, like five years, right, even even under a Republican or maybe even especially under a Republican administration, we're going to see these these uh, platforms uh, taken down a peg or two. Um, now, they could be taken down in ways that make things worse, obviously, right? Um, and I would much rather have a Democratic administration do this than a Republican one. But I do think it's more than possible. And, and, you know, the proof of concept here is we've been here before, right? We had in the 1880s, we had uh, people were obsessed with what they called the double headed monopoly uh, of the telegraph and the, and the newspaper, you know, which. The two, the biggest newspaper lord and the biggest, uh, telephone, or telegraph company were owned by the same guy, uh, uh, a person we would call today a private equity vulture capitalist called Jay Gould, right? And managed to control both those things. And through progressive era politics, we changed the laws and put, put that, put a stop to that kind of corporate abuse. Um, we did this every time new technologies came along that had the potential for fantastic abuse and, you know, by by corporations and by political demagogues and others. We found ways to to constrain that, you know, when television came along, we had a fairness doctrine and radio, too. Right. Mm-hmm. So that right, with somebody like Rush Limbaugh could not have done what he did prior to the 1980s because we had. We had fairness doctrine laws that said radio stations had to be, uh, in an ironic phrase, fair and balanced, right? Uh, you you put a Rush Limbaugh on, you had to put somebody else on in the same airways yeah. to rebut him, right? And that's that's how a previous generation dealt with this really severe potential problem of television and radio broadcasting, right? Um, we, we just chucked all that in the 1980s. I mean, Limbaugh was totally an obscurity until one day in 1986 when the Federal Communications Act, this repealed the the fairness doctrine. And then all of a sudden he he had the 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 runway to do what he did. Um, And and he and many other imitators created the whole conservative radio empire. Right. So, again, we've been here before. We've managed to turn the tide back. Um, it's been a, usually a generational struggle to do it, but we've done it. And so um, I think we can do it again.
1: Um, Philip, I have a, a, what might be a silly question. Um, does it make any difference if we use Google Chrome as our browser? Are we somehow, um, promoting Google I mean, should we use, be using Firefox or Safari or DuckDuckGo or some other browser as as people who use the interme- internet? Are we adding to Google's power and coffers by using their browser?
5: Yes, I, oh. I don't use Google Chrome for that. For well, that I'm not going
1: anymore it, either. Yeah,
5: yeah. Philip it Longman has, it, says it no. More power surveillance. Yeah.
1: Yes. Don't do it. Okay. Well, going forward, I definitely will not. One other quick question. You said in the Microsoft case that even though the Bush administration brought an end to the to the effort in court, that they made changes. Do you see any indication that to maybe try to head off some of this bipartisan legislation in Congress that Google will make changes?
2: They
5: might. I mean, they, they might realize In their own selfish way, that continuing to move into new areas of monopolization is just tempting fate, that they'd be much better off spinning off some of these corporations and and demonopolizing things. Um, They may do it on their own if the political threat is serious enough. And in the long history of antitrust, it's not just the, the cases we won. It's just the cases we bought that scared the bejesus out of corporations yeah. into doing the right thing. So it's a credible threat of an antitrust suit can often do a lot of good.
1: Uh, Philip Longman has written the lead article in the January-February print issue of Washington Monthly. It is, his article is obviously available on their digital site as well. How to Save Journalism and Democracy, Fighting Monopoly Can Save Journalism. Philip, thank you so much. This is such an important conversation. And as this progresses through the courts, I I hope we can have more conversations about what's happening.
5: I look forward to that, Joe. I really appreciate the chance to
0: talk to your audience.
1: Thank you. Uh, We're going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more after this.
0: Joan Esposito,
1: live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And
0: progressive.
1: I think you get the idea. On
0: WCPT 820.
1: You all know that there are some incredible, incredible documentaries out there um, that teach us things, that show us inside topics and issues we care about. One of the people who's responsible for a lot of those documentaries is Michael Kirk. Uh, Used to be one of the main producers with uh, Frontline on PBS, formed his own production company, the Kirk Documentary Group, a group that has won just about every award there is to win in broadcast journalism. There's a new documentary they're coming out with. It's called Democracy on Trial, and Michael is here to talk with us about it. Michael, thank you so much for being here.
6: My pleasure, Joan. Great to talk to you.
1: And um, democracy, what a timely topic for 2024. Um, You know, um, as we uh, as we seem to see the potential for our democracy Slipping through our fingers, tell me about democracy on trial. What do you cover?
6: Well, if, if you believe, as I do, that this is the most important presidential election in decades, maybe in a century. Uh, uh, but we we've uh, partly because uh, it's the first time in American history that a president has been charged with crimes in office and in the middle of a presidential election, this is the critical moment for for democracy. Is what's going to happen on that trial on uh, in Washington D.C. on March fourth, if it if it gets rolling? So we decided to go all the way back and tell the story of everything that happened from election night until January sixth uh, in great detail. Working in some ways with the, the January sixth committee that was formed by Nancy Pelosi and. Uh, and had a couple of Republicans like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger on it. It, uh, it, it's fascinating to look at that. We then went and interviewed people who were uh, in those hearings, uh, people who uh, in Arizona and Georgia and lots of other places uh, confronted uh, were confronted by uh, President Trump and Rudy Giuliani uh, in the aftermath of their uh, allegations that the election had been stolen. So we... We pull it all together. It's a two and a half hour journey, but it's everything you need to know to remind yourself of just how uh, just how things went down uh, three years ago, and uh, and what's what's likely to happen in the trial when Donald Trump, uh, if Donald Trump, faces a, a jury uh, in just a few weeks.
1: I want to talk about what's likely to happen. But first, I want to talk a little bit about this is you didn't set yourself a small goal here, uh, Michael. Um, This was um, some might say it was a little um, ambitious, unwieldy. How on earth did you do this? Who did you talk to? Where did you get footage? Um, Tell us about what went into this, your sources. Uh,
2: um,
6: in the first place, it, it took months to do it, and first to research it and then to shoot it and then to edit it. Uh, it's, um, it, it. It relies, in some cases, on the hearings themselves, but we also acquired, I don't know, thousands of thousands of minutes of stock footage and footage about the Trump administration, about Trump and about what happened then. We've, uh, we've interviewed... Uh, we set a goal for ourselves, which was to try to only interview uh, Republicans who voted for Trump and who worked in state government in Arizona and in uh, Georgia and other places. People who testified at the hearings, but also people who ran afoul of the president, his former lawyers, his have uh, just everybody you could imagine. Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the House from Arizona, the legislature there. So, and, and not just kind of quick TV kind of interviews. We've talked to these people for two hours, three hours in some cases, and and uh, and, and went through the whole story with them. There are more than uh, I think thirty interviews we shot, maybe maybe thirty-five, uh, hundreds, uh, thousands, really, pages of documents and other things, uh, uh, all the depositions, uh, everything we everything we could get our hands on. Uh, and the people at the January sixth committee, the investigators, the special investigators were uh, were also people we interviewed about what they found and how they found it. We had access to all the national archives and all the information from the January sixth committee. so it's a quite a quite an endeavor it's uh, it's worth it's worth it if uh, if Americans can can come to understand as they approach this election just exactly what happened. And what a threat to democracy! Well, I guess I can decide was uh, was this a threat to the to the democracy to the American de- democracy? Many people in the film say it was, and uh, and uh, those of us who worked on it say uh, peril is just around the corner mm-hmm. for the democracy, depending on what happens with these trials.
1: Michael, did I hear you correctly? Did you say that you made the conscious decision to just talk to Republicans?
6: We we, try, we tried very hard to do it. It wasn't entirely possible. But most of the people who speak in the film, or many of the people who speak in the film, aside from being authors, and there's a few journalists in there, uh, and there are investigators, of course, to the committee. But uh,
0: the people who speak
6: as witnesses uh, and the people who speak uh, most knowledgeably are people who supported Donald Trump. Uh, like Rusty Bowers in Arizona, the head of the election there, the people in Georgia, the head of the election there, Brad Rassenberger. I mean, they, they, uh, they all were big Trump supporters. But when the time came, and they sent Rudy Giuliani and uh, and, uh, and Trump uh, uh, called them on the phone and and uh, asked them to, you know, to to, to go against their oath. These were all uh, good, solid Republicans who said, "No, I will not break my oath just so that the Donald Trump can win the presidency." You're asking me to do things without evidence. In one case, uh, Rudy Giuliani said to Rusty Bowers, the Arizona uh, Speaker of the House, uh, "Well, we don't have we don't have any facts, but we do have theories," <laughs> and, uh, and that that became sort of the 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 word we we don't have any evidence, but we do have theories. It it made its way into the indictment from uh, Special Prosecutor Jack Smith, uh, and it was it's it's all over uh, uh, the testimony of others. It just became this big, critical, very important moment uh, in that, in those hearings, and wow. it was filmed, by the way.
1: Wow. Um, I don't want to I'm not trying to steal your thunder, but is there was in in the documentary, which, by the way, is airing Tuesday, January 30th on PBS, but also streaming on YouTube and PBS.org. Um, yeah. When you looked at the finished product, was there one interview? Was there one soundbite that that you looked at and you go, wow, I can't believe I can't believe we got that or I can't believe that person said that?
6: It, it 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 could rely on uh, Rusty Bowers as the star of the show, if you will. Uh, it's also a very, very good interview with uh, Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state for Georgia, another Republican, another Trump supporter who uh, everybody famously, uh, everybody who was interested famously heard the phone call where Donald Trump called him and said, uh, Brad, I just need 11,000 votes. Go find eleven thousand votes for me, will you? Because he knew he had come up short in Georgia, but he kept he kept saying, you know, like count uh, them again, count everything again, and you you hear it, and you you talk to Raffensperger, who says, look, I I just couldn't do it. I was not going to make it up for him. Uh, I uh, I uh, I had to tell the truth. I ha- I swore an oath. And I had to tell the truth. And I had to stand up. He was he was trying to bully me, but I, I wouldn't let him. It's a very important moment in the film. And so is a, a, a moment like it with uh, Rusty Bowers. And then there's a heartbreaking scene between two women, a mother and a daughter who worked in uh, the election, uh, the, the central, the State Farm Arena in uh, in uh, Atlanta, who, who had become the subjects of uh, Rudy Giuliani's racist and uh and false uh, allegations that they had been fixing votes and hiding ballots and doing all kinds of other things. They're, they're the two women who recently won 146, I think it's 146 million uh, uh, civil suit against Giuliani for, for uh, libelling and slandering them. It's, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a great, a sad and an emotional moment, their testimony and their story about what happened to them once, uh, they were targeted by uh, Rudy Giuliani uh, on behalf of President Trump. So there's lots inside the film. that really are you referring to? I by mean, the way, she, you... Shea
1: Moss and Ruby Freeman.
6: Right, exactly right. Mm-hmm. Shea and Ruby, uh, wonderful, wonderful people, and uh, and um, you know you you see it all laid out for you, and then uh, and then. Even if you're a Republican, even if you if Trump has said, ignore, 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 don't pay any attention to all of that stuff. It's pretty hard if you if you watch this. I think it's pretty hard to not say, gee, I, I don't think he had any evidence. And uh, I'm not sure whether I believe that the election was stolen or not. And and it's it's an amazing thing that it, it was a, uh, quite a tour, quite a task uh, uh, to get the film together at the beginning of this political season. But boy, if ever there was a time for people to refresh their memories on what happened, this is that time.
1: Absolutely. I'm going to continue my discussion with documentary filmmaker Michael Kirk, who has a new documentary coming out called Democracy on Trial. You can see it on PBS Tuesday, January 30th. It's going to stream on YouTube and PBS.org. We're going to take a quick break and come back and talk more with him right after this.
0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: Okay. I am uh, speaking to documentary filmmaker Michael Kirk. And Michael, during the break, Andy, who's uh, running the board and uh, acts as my spare brain, Reminded me that uh, Tuesday, January 30th was actually yesterday. So unless you set a uh, front line to record, as he so smugly told me that he did, so he's going to have on his DVR your documentary. I'm going to be finding it on YouTube and PBS.org, and it's called Democracy on Trial. Um, Michael, you said earlier in our interview here, it, it seemed to indicate a little bit of mm, questioning whether or not the January 6th trial of Donald Trump would take place this March. Um, but you said that if the trial is likely to happen, that you see us being in peril. Would you talk more about that? Explain that a little bit more?
6: It's uh, he, he, Here's a case where... Um, uh, we've all read, or we've read the in, indictments. We know that it's the indictments are almost a carbon copy of what the January 6th committee uh, sent as a referral over to the justice department after they were done. So that's the sort of blueprint. So we, we know what, we know what they hope will Jack uh, S- uh, Smith hopes he can get into the trial. You know, the rules of evidence and other things get more complicated than a committee hearing. But the fact is that, uh, if they get in the trial and if the trial is actually happens on the fourth, and if there's a jury seated, the jury will be people sitting there uh, uh, listening to this story. And if and if uh, Donald Trump is convicted, he can still be uh, he will appeal, of course. And while the appeal process takes place over the next year or however longer that is, he could he will still be running for president of the United States. He's running now. Part of his campaign is courtrooms in New York and Florida and other places. He, he loves to stand there out in front of the courtroom and, and do a, a campaign event. So he will be campaigning. Let's say he loses in, and is found guilty uh, of criminal charges. This is a former president, first time ever. Let's say he's found guilty of criminal charges and he's still running for president. He could, in fact, be elected president. And as president, as they tell us, he could uh, pardon himself and pick up the phone and call his new attorney general and say, turn the spigot off on all these other cases against me that you guys are cooking up over there uh, and uh, and walk away, uh, even though he's been uh, convicted uh, in that trial. Now, that is going to upset an awful lot of Americans, I suppose. Uh, on the other hand, if he if he is. Convicted and loses the election because enough Republicans now. Repub- many Republicans say they don't care if he gets convicted or not; they'll still vote for him. But not enough to get him elected. Let's say, let's say he doesn't get elected. How angry are the people, uh, or the groups that uh, didn't uh, that, that that attacked the Capitol building on January six? How angry will they be? How much participation will actually? Uh, and, and cooperation will actually be going on uh, once again in our already super partisan environment in Washington and in the states. It uh, it promises to be very compl- complicated and probably potentially violent uh, uh, things that could happen uh, next fall, depending on how it turns out with the trial and what happens with if he gets elected or doesn't get elected and how much people believe that the next election was stolen. Um, Are we in for a real test of our democracy? Uh, That's the question that presented itself when we started this film. And when we finished the film, we say it really is the ultimate test of the democracy. And of course, what's the ultimate test of the democracy? Really, it's whether people feel that their vote will be counted, uh, when they go privately into that uh, voting booth and uh, and, uh, and and mark their choice for president. That's the sacred act of a democracy. If that is not counted, if things happen because of that, um, w- or the democracy will truly be in peril. And I know from all the people we've talked to in making this film that many, many people are very concerned about the, any outcome, of that trial and any outcome of the upcoming election.
1: I have been talking a little bit about these kinds of issues here on the radio show, and I'd I'd like to run a couple of my ideas by you. Um, I have said repeatedly, you know, because sometimes I speak to people who are very enthusiastic and like um, if, you know, if there's a conviction, somehow that's going to completely change the landscape and everyone will look at Donald Trump (laughs) with fresh eyes and. I don't believe that that's true. Uh, as a matter of fact, even if he is convicted of something in the criminal realm and yet the election is not over, I don't think that there is a jury or a judge in the land that will put him behind bars. I think they will just you know, put him on maybe an ankle bracelet or uh, leave him free on his own recognizance until an appeal works its way through the courts. However, if he's convicted of something after he loses the next election, then I think we might possibly see, even though it's not first on my list, I think it's at least in the realm of possibility that we could potentially see him given some small amount of jail time. Do you think um, that I have any idea what I'm talking about when I say these things?
6: You're not going to put me in that position. You sound perfectly rational to me, but I don't I don't I don't know enough about uh, there's a lot of what ifs in there and a lot of uh, uh, unreliable what ifs. Well, I just don't think people are going
1: to touch him. I think nobody in the legal system, no matter what he's convicted of, nobody's going to touch him. Um, until he officially loses the next election. And I do believe uh, he's as much as told us what you say is true, that if he wins, he's going to pardon himself and he's going to any, any uh, investigation that he has power over, he's going to bring to a halt. I mean, I yeah. agree 100%. Yeah,
6: I, I think uh, in that case, all, all of those things he says that's what he's going to do. So I, I believe him uh, 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 about that. And uh, and, I and you know, the fact is there's so many variables, there's so many courts and judges and, and mm-hmm. it's a long road to the Supreme Court. Uh, many, many things can happen. Uh, you know, many of the judges that voted uh, to, or that found back in when the when Giuliani and Sidney Powell and others were running around from one courtroom to another and they lost. 50 or 60 cases, uh, many of those judges were not what they kept calling them, which was corrupt. They were Trump judges, Trump Mm. federal judges. So there are a lot of judges out there who are, yes, members of the Federalist Society, yes, Trump supporters, but they're also lawyers and they also believe and try to follow the rule of law. And that is a big, bright, shining light. Trump doesn't, obviously doesn't, and some of his closest people do not really understand or believe. The rule of law is something they're bound by, uh, you know, their arguments, uh, their answer to Jack Craig's indictments is often, you know, the president can act with impunity. The president can do, uh, 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 he has immunity, total immunity for anything he does, uh, that he has absolute freedom of speech. So they will make those arguments all the way down to the election and whatever happens with the election, if he loses, uh, uh there will then be arguments like there were after the second impeachment uh, well we got to put him away because if we don't put him away even if he's convicted if we don't put him away uh, he's going to run again yeah so you know I, I, you know what what uh, there will be all those arguments we will be having again the democracy will be on trial because uh, however that gets worked out is a, is a, is a, is critical to the continuation of people's belief and the truth and the, and the power of the rule of law. And that's the essential thing that's up for grabs here. Not really just Donald Trump and whatever happens to him, but it's whether American citizens and enough of them, uh, American citizens who have been taught since they were children that to follow the rule of law, that we have a constitution and there are laws you just don't break. well, in this case, that's absolutely an open question for a little while in here, and, uh, and it's something that Americans, when they go into the polling booth, will, uh, uh, I hope, especially if they've watched our film, uh, they will at least sit and say, uh, or stand and say, you know, I want to think really carefully about what my, what my selection of Donald Trump uh, could mean of the democracy, or my reason, my my rationale not to vote for Joe Biden could mean for, uh, or or young Kennedy or whatever it is. Their their decisions are all uh, are all going to really matter in this particular upcoming election. vis-a-vis what happens with Donald Trump and what happens with the America's belief in the rule of law.
1: If you want to see um, Michael Kirk's. New uh, documentary, Democracy on Trial. It is streaming on YouTube and PBS.org. Michael, it is a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for uh, chatting with us about your newest work.
6: You're very welcome, John. Thank you for the good questions and the interesting conversation.
1: We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this.
0: Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820.
1: I'm very happy to welcome back Carolyn Fiddler to our airwaves. And I appreciate the fact that we just interrupted her as she writes her <laughs> newsletter this week in state house action. Uh, consider this like a little tea break, Carolyn. Do you have tea? Can we <laughs> fix you some tea? I
4: do, in fact, have tea. I have a lot of loose leaf tea hanging around. It's my it's my winter go to for sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for for joining us. How can people uh, get this week in state house action? Uh, they can go to, uh,
4: my social media profiles. I'm at CFIDD on pretty much all of them and it's linked to usually my profile there or they can go to, uh, com and, uh, sign right on up. It is super free because people need to know what's going on in all these state legislatures. And it is not, not always my pleasure to tell them because a lot of times it's very bad news, but, um, it's important to, to get it out there. So.
1: Can you give us a preview of what's in the next issue?
4: <laughs> well, I actually have a lot of, lot of uh, ground to cover. I've been uh, I've been previously so focused on Virginia that I had had a lot of time to kind of look at the 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 bigger picture. Um and once you do, you notice that it's actually very very ugly. This is an election year for most state legislatures and um and also this is the time of year when most state legislatures are in session. So folks are queuing up a lot of election year legislation. And on the Republican side, that stuff is especially nasty. It is hateful. It marginalizes already uh, struggling groups. um, It's uh, it's it's full of rewards for for for. Not great people and full of punishment for people just trying to live their lives. So, um, But there are also rays of, of goodness and hope uh, in these legislatures as well. I want to make sure to not give everyone a full uh, doom and gloom show. That would be a super, super bummer.
1: That would be like my typical show. Um, and we, you know, I'd like a nice break from that kind of thing. So share with, with us one good thing that we can cling to. Well it's it's
4: a good thing with an asterisk. Um uh bills to uh, raise the minimum wage and uh make uh paid family and medical leave. The law in Virginia are moving through the legislature and uh, are expected to pass and hit the governor's desk. And that is, that is great news. But the asterisk is that Youngkin is already signaling that he plans to veto these things, uh, which is just tragic. But um, he is, he's made it clear that he thinks the market should be responsible for things like benefits and wages. So um, that's where we are in Virginia. Yeah, no, he thinks the market will, will just fix things
1: as, he, as you know, it's done such a great he... <laughs> job at that in our in our past, yeah. You know, why wouldn't you think that? Right. I mean, before Democrats took control of the
4: legislature back in uh, after the elections of 2019, the minimum wage in Virginia hadn't been raised for for decades. It was tied to the federal, and that hasn't gone up in ages. And suddenly, uh, the minimum raise uh, jumped a little bit, and that's been a good thing. You would think for Virginia's economy. Yunkin's the one who likes to run around talking about how great Virginia's economy is. Um, raising the minimum wage is a part of Virginia's econ- economic greatness, uh, I think it's fair to argue. And yet he's against uh, doing it again. So. <sighs> and, but he also doesn't understand that he has to work with a bunch of Democrats to, uh, to accomplish the things that he wants to get done. And so there's going to be some horse trading. You never know what's going to get signed at the end of the day because – you know, he wants to go out, uh, you know, he wants to leave office with some accomplishments under his belt, and if he doesn't play ball with Democrats, he's not going to get it.
1: You know, you make an interesting point, um, because, you know, there's this whole issue of legacy, and, and you can be, like, the biggest jerk for the, in you know, the vast majority of your career, but oftentimes, <laughs> seriously, as people realize they are in their waning days, they start to think about how they are going to be remembered and sometimes that can make some changes um people i i would it's so funny you mentioned that because i was just reading last week um an article about how um what is mitch mcconnell's legacy going to be hmm. and that if he doesn't if he doesn't Make some alterations, you know, regardless of anything he did or didn't accomplish, his legacy is going to be that he ended up, you know, sitting in Trump's lap and ended up rolling over and capitulating to Donald Trump. And I wonder how, uh, how how much behavior change we can expect from someone when they realize that history is not going to treat them well. What do you think?
4: That's a that's a really really cool and interesting question. Um, I think I mean the thing that I'm going to remember him for is ramming through a bunch of Federalist Society Mm Trump-approved judges that are going to who have lifetime appointments now. Uh, so that, I think, is his, 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 you know, some would say greatest or most horrifying legacy, depending on which way you're yeah. looking at it, I suppose. <laughs> so, yeah. But, you know, he did that. But he did all that at, uh, you know, he did that as part of absolutely rolling over for Trump. Um and uh he I mean I can't think of a policy uh thing to 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 hang around uh his neck uh like what's he what's he done? what's he responsible for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. besides besides obstruction, he's really good at you know keeping people from getting anything done. He's really good at that
1: well, I have a a tendency sometimes uh to focus you know on everything that's going on on Capitol Hill, and yet what's happening in the various states? is arguably more important than what's going on in Congress. Give us one state legislature that you're really interested in writing about now and what the issues are there.
4: Uh, you know, I, my go-to is kind of, uh, is often uh, Wisconsin. It's a, it's a interesting. Usually a bad things are happening in Wisconsin, but... Uh, with the with the legislature convening this year it being an election year uh, Republicans the Republicans who run the state legislature who have majority control in Wisconsin m- are probably going to be looking at a new set of of maps they have to run on uh, this coming fall um, and they're going to be less gerrymandered much more fair maps uh, because honestly you really can't get more gerrymandered or more unfair than the current maps, I mean, but uh, hopefully it'll be drawn in a, in a much more equitable way that actually lets voters' voices be heard uh, meaningfully. And that is bad news for Republicans in a state that's pretty evenly divided politically. Uh, it's you know, Democratic governor, you have a Democratic senator, you have a Republican U.S. senator. Like, Wisconsin is just is very, very swingy, and uh, the legislature should reflect that a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot. It should reflect it, it at all it doesn't reflect it now so watching Republicans there you know try to restrict uh, transgender rights and uh, and further you know, block abortion and do all kinds of terrible things that they know the governor is going to veto, but they're trying to do it anyway, um, is uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch as this year uh, continues on. Are they going to try and tack towards the middle a little bit, kind of hedging their bets against uh, competitive maps this fall? Or are they going to just keep on keeping on, uh, just throwing their weight around and trying to uh, be in charge of uh, all the things they can, despite the fact that they don't have the governorship um, yeah. and
1: uh, continue doing bad things? We'll I think we're seeing <laughs> glimmers in Wisconsin that I like very much. Um, I, I'm sorry that Ron Johnson got reelected to the Senate. And I've thought a lot about that. I mean, I know, okay, I'm going to be, um, I'm looking in the rearview mirror. So I have the benefit of hindsight, but I think that, um, trying to get an African American elected to the Senate from Wisconsin was maybe too much of a reach. You know, Wisconsin certainly is purple. It's very blue in, in the urban areas, but there are a lot of very, very red, uh, dare I say, racist uh, rural areas in Wisconsin. And I, I think, um, I think Mr. Mandela, either wasn't given the right talking points or the right support to win those over or maybe never never had a chance i mean there were you know uh, sarah godlewski who is of course still very much involved in politics as uh, was the state treasurer has gone on to create some activists organizations that we talk about from time to time with 2020 hindsight i'm wondering if um if she would have been a better candidate do you um, have any thoughts on
4: that? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, it's obviously it's impossible to know, but um, I will say. One thing, and just for full disclosure to your listeners, I was born and raised in Virginia, and so I, I do uh, end up seeing some politics through a Virginia-centric lens, and I, and I apologize. But I think it's useful in this case because it, it's it's easy to, to kind of – I mean, I, I personally found it very easy to believe that there, there was no way uh, a black man named Barack Obama was ever going to win Virginia <laughs> in a presidential, and boy, howdy, was I wrong uh in two thousand eight i was i had never been so delighted to be completely wrong in my life and he he took virginia and it, it it for the and that was the first time a democrat had won virginia in many many years so it was uh it was really it was really remarkable and it's it's you know it's a kind of uh you know it's it's uh not easy, but it's, it's tempting to think that like your state's never going to, going to be able to elect, you know, person X, uh, until it happens. Um, and then, so I think that, um, I, 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 Sarah would, would have been a great candidate. She's a great candidate for anything. I think she, I hope she remains, uh, deeply involved in, in politics in Wisconsin. Um, and isn't, isn't discouraged from running for more things in the future, but, uh, Uh, Mandela Barnes is also uh, a really outstanding uh, leader in that state, and I really hope that he also uh, continues his his political career. Um, It's hard to know exactly what went, uh, you know, askew in Wisconsin uh, in that Senate election, but um, sometimes sometimes there's, you know, no accounting for taste, I guess Mm -hmm. you could say. (laughs) Well, you
1: know, I'm beginning to think, um, because I thought that once— Barack Obama was elected to the presidency, we would see a shift in politics, that that would be sort of uh, the opening of a door. And as time goes on, I'm beginning to think more and more he was a unicorn, you know, the kind of thing you see once in a lifetime, um, but not something that really means that... um some doors are open that you might think would have been closed because, you know, Barack Obama, it's, that's mm-hmm. a, you know, you're always talking about, and I'm always talking about, you know, how he won this state that's always gone red or he won this state that, you know, was always going for the bushes and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I think I'm beginning to think it had more to do with him as an individual than it, than it meant that there was this big movement arriving.
4: Is, I mean, I think that's actually a, an excellent, excellent point. Um, but I think there's also like a different sort of a wrinkle here in that the Republican response to that door being opened for the first time was to uh, intensely double down on a lot of racist things that they've been dog whistling about for quite some time. Um, and they just decided to go all in finally. And um, I think that's in, in a way that let us not to Donald Trump directly but definitely in his direction um i think that it brought it I think it scared a lot of uh maybe the base i think it's i think fear is a great motivator and i mm-hmm. think republicans capitalized on that and um uh, yeah it's uh it's tough to know, but uh, I, I, I have to believe, I don't want to believe, I have to believe that we're going to have another president of color in, in my lifetime, hopefully, like, <laughs> way before my lifetime ends, because I do, I do plan on living to, like, 200, so. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice. I'm thinking I'll be lucky to hit 90. Um, so, you oh. know. But you know you're younger and healthier, so you've got you've got more of a shot at that than I do. Um, Carolyn, <laughs> we are going to take a break, and only because I love John Fetterman, I want to talk to you about Pennsylvania. I'm talking to sure. Carolyn uh, Fiddler. You can find her uh, st- Substack if you go to Substack.com. This week in State House action. We'll be back with more after this.
0: Don't turn that dial.
1: A dangerous mistake to make.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Returns right now on WCPT 820.
1: And I'm joined by Carolyn Fidler, whose Substack is This Week in State House Action. She keeps an eye on what is going on in state legislatures across the country. And I kind of, I, I like to invite her on and then it's like it's a dartboard. I just randomly call yeah. out the names of various <laughs> states and expect a complete and total rundown of the issues and the people we should be paying attention to. So right before the break, I actually gave her a little bit of heads up on this one. <laughs> I love John Fetterman, and I remember when he was running, there was, um, it you know, even though Dr. Oz was considered a carpetbagger and not really a resident and, um, had a lot of, um, he, well, he had a lot of name recognition, et cetera, and so forth. Um, and it was, so it wasn't considered a, a lock. But I think that John Fetterman is, is just terrific. And I love the fact that, especially on of his, on his social media, he doesn't, Pull any punches. He speaks on social media the way he speaks in person, which is to tell you exactly what he thinks in no uncertain terms. But the Pennsylvania is by no means a blue state. So tell me what's going on in Pennsylvania.
4: I, it's it's really important. I think that you point out that Pennsylvania should not be considered a blue state. Uh, I wish more people would kind of hold that in the forefront of their minds. Um, it is absolutely also a swing state, like the aforementioned Wisconsin, uh, mm-hmm. but very different from from Wisconsin in a lot of important ways, uh, including the fact that they have uh, you know fair. Legislative maps, and so the House is very, very, very narrowly controlled by Democrats, literally one seat. And the Republican and the Senate is still controlled by Republicans. Um, both could change this fall. The full House is up, in half of the Senate. So we'll see how that shakes out. And also in the near term, there's a special election for that for that majority-making seat in the in the Pennsylvania House. Uh, that's incredible. It's obviously very important. It's a race the Democrats should win, but Republicans really, 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 really would like to take. That Majority back, and uh, you know, have, have try to have their fun again. Again, with a Democratic governor, it's hard for them to do everything that they want to do, but they can um, still block a lot of good things, like the state Senate is doing now. Um, yeah, if, Democrat, if, 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 uh, if folks in Pennsylvania ever want. Uh, recreational marijuana to be legal they're gonna to have to elect more Democrats to the legislature that is for sure so um, a lot of election year posturing happening already in Pennsylvania um, but we'll see if that translates into any actual policy uh, for folks um, and this isn't a straight state legislative but there was a very uh, a very uh, nice <laughs> a good ruling uh, by the Pennsylvania state Supreme Court recently uh, uh, about uh, abortion being a fundamental a, a right in the in the state so sorry in the Commonwealth of uh, Pennsylvania. As, as, as a native of a Commonwealth, I, you know, I have to respect their Commonwealth <laughs> status as well. So,
1: and this seat um, that is that is up for election. This seat, do I understand this right? Does it does it or does it not um, determine who has a, a majority?
4: It will. Uh, right now, the right now the the Pennsylvania uh, two hundred and three seat house. It's, uh, it's quite large. Uh, thankfully, an odd number of seats, um, so there's a tie is not possible. That would lead to all kinds of interesting situations. I mean, I say thankfully um, just for folks who like orderly stuff. It would be really interesting to see what a tied chamber would do in terms of making deals and sharing power, but that's not what we're looking at in Pennsylvania. Uh, right now, the legislature is divided 101-101 with one empty seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a democratically held seat, and so whoever wins the special election, uh their party will have majority control with the legislature for the rest of the year.
1: And when Probably. is Unless this? Unless there are more el- resignations
4: and more specials. Oh, yeah.
1: When is this When is this election?
4: Is uh, it, is it this
1: spring or is it the, with the presidential election? Oh, no,
4: it's coming up uh, pretty soon. June. Hold on. I don't remember the exact date, but I can get that real quick because of the magic of the Internet.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because a lot of times, I mean, like people will remind me I'll keep talking about, oh, you know, this fall, this fall, this fall. And and I'll have listeners say, by the way, you do realize that there are certain issues and certain people that are going to be on the ballot like this spring, Joan. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so easy in a big election year when there's uh, a big election for president. It's it's easy for people like me, who are apparently confused very easily, to forget about these, the smaller, if you can call them that, if there's anything as a, like a small election anymore, that take place um, before <laughs> the big one.
4: Yeah, this is a, this is a big one, and I'm actually completely mortified that I forgot the date because it is also the birthday of my best friend from law school. The special <laughs> election is on February 13th, uh, the day before Valentine's Day, so you know folks don't have to, you know, interrupt their plans. They can go out on Tuesday and, <laughs> As and cast one their does, ballots.
1: You know, oh honey, <laughs> let's celebrate Valentine's Day by voting together. That uh, sounds incredibly romantic to me. I but I so. a normal person. But you know, you and I are are perhaps. Um, not the average person. Um, what was it? <laughs> one of my listeners a, a year or two ago said that people like you and me, we were government geeks. Government geeks, which I've always kind of worn as a badge of honor. I, I'm not ashamed oh, to yeah. be a government. I've, God knows I've been called worse, Carolyn. <laughs> uh, but that's a discussion for off air, okay? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So um, we hit the state that I'm um obsessed with right now. What else um what else should I um what other states should I be looking at? Uh, let's see. Tennessee is back in
4: session and doing some terrible things. Um uh, Idaho, states that uh, yeah, are so Republican-controlled that in years past, I, I confess, I, I didn't pay a ton of attention to them because they were kind of just doing their kind of Republican thing. And in doing that... Mm-hmm. Sometimes they weren't really bothering too many people. Uh, You know, on a regular basis, they would try and further restrict abortion rights and things like that. But now, uh, with uh, Roe having been overturned, they are just going about restricting abortion willy-nilly. And in states where they've already done that, and there's nothing left for them to do on that, um, some states are trying to uh, prevent folks from leaving their state to obtain abortion care which is absolutely
1: boring. That is total handmaid's tale stuff there. Yeah. I've I've read about some of those proposals, and I certainly hope they die a, a quiet death. Um, Andy, our board op, <clears throat> just texted me that his cousins in Michigan told him recently that the Democrats in the statehouse there lost their majority and that it's now evenly split. Um, what are you looking at when you look at Michigan? Uh, and, hi, Andy.
4: Thanks for <laughs> thank you for joining us. Uh, yes, so there are a couple of resignations uh, that that technically leave the chamber split, but the the rules are such that them still exercise majority control in terms of like how the committees are structured, who speaker, things like that, in a lot of functional ways. However. Floor votes, uh, you know, can be tied now if no if no one crosses the aisle to vote with the other party, and that can lead to a lot of things not getting done. But again, we have special elections in that state uh, to hopefully give Democrats back the proper majority. It is a small majority there that's very much uh, in danger this fall, and I hope folks don't haven't decided that Michigan is sufficiently yeah. blue that they don't have to worry about it.
1: But. Let's face it. I think the lesson we've learned in the last few years is that we have to worry about everything all the time. And we can't just, you know, I used to talk, uh, to a guy who was head of Personal PAC, which was a fundraising arm for Planned Parenthood. And I used to talk to him about, um, abortion and, oh, you know, we got Roe v. Wade. And he was like, you know, you know what? Um, he was instrumental, um, Terry Cosgrove, he was instrumental in getting Illinois to get some of these. You know how Wisconsin, the 1849 abortion law Mm -hmm. kicked in. Mm -hmm. Terry Cosgrove was instrumental in lobbying Illinois lawmakers to clean up the old laws that were on the books that had never been enforced because of Roe v. Wade. And he kept telling people, you know, you, you can't. Count on it. You can't count on always having that protection. You've got to be ready just in case the worst, the worst thing happens. And sure enough, the worst thing happened. But Illinois was in pretty good place because of him.
4: That is that is great work. I, that's mm-hmm. very impressive. And I'm really happy that happened. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah.
1: Well, I'd say things like, well, you know, we don't have to worry here in Illinois. And he'd be like, Joan, stop right there you know we are you we are always one election away from things being very different and that's what we have to remember whether it is michigan whether it is pennsylvania whether it is illinois we can't take anything for granted
4: that's completely true there there there's a little part of me that slightly envies people who see like politics and elections as boring things because <sighs> Um, being aware of like what, what hinges on these races mm-hmm. every year is exhausting.
1: <laughs> it is. It absolutely is exhausting. I had dinner uh, last night with a girlfriend who said, she goes, she was like, yeah, you know, I don't really pay attention to politics that often. And I thought to myself, you know, I kind of envy that kind of just blase. The world will take care of itself. I worry about everything all the time. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, I'm going to invite and, uh, you back. Uh, and, uh, I w- and I hope Andy uh, will, will tell
4: all of his friends to vote uh, if they live in those districts. Yes. Uh, Andy, get, uh, and, on, the f- and get in, on the phone. Um, in those special elections.
1: Get on the phone to cousins. Yeah.
4: <laughs> Thank you. The, the specials are on uh, April 16th. So, yes. file the taxes, go vote.
1: <laughs> I'm sure he will. He's a government geek just like us. So he Love will, it. I'm sure. sure. Uh, Carolyn, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to invite you back on a regular basis so we can worry together.
4: I would love that. Uh, You're you're a great company, regardless, worrying or or otherwise. So I cannot (laughs) wait.
1: Thank you, (laughs) Carolyn Fiddler. Her um, her newsletter is on Substack. The week this week in state house action go to substack.com we're going to take a break for news and be back with much more after this
0: WCPT 820 Chicago's Progressive Talk where facts matter Jonas Esposito, live local and progressive on WCPT 820
1: I am joined by um one person that um you have heard from before A longtime local newsman and political commentator, Dave Lehman, is here. And uh, Dave has introduced us to someone who he thinks we should know about and we should be talking to, a guy by the name of Jim Hummel. You can uh, read his reporting. He does the Hummel Report, hummelreport.org. It is um, on the interwebs, and he is based in rhode island and reports on everything going on in that state uh hello david and welcome to our show jim
7: hey there hi joan how you doing
1: (laughs) i'm doing i'm doing good jim it is so nice to meet you and david thank you so much for making this introduction jim i've been looking at the at the hummel report and uh David said that you know you do this you have decided to do this kind of journalism where you have more freedom than you've had um in other earlier iterations of your career talk about what led you to start this
7: Yeah that is true and thank you for having me I should let you know that I was born in Lagrange and spent the first 5 years of my life in Downers Grove before uh, <laughs> well, before good, Chicago to- boy yeah, so nice. To, well, I don't remember much. We moved here almost 60 years ago, but I have fond <laughs> memories of, uh, of my time there when I was young. Uh, so I had been reporting in Rhode Island for 42 years, and that was not by design. Uh, I was uh, from here. I went to college in North Carolina. And in 1982, when I was getting ready to graduate, I wanted to go south. And so I had jobs lined up in, or I had prospects in St. Petersburg and Atlanta and Dallas, and then the economy went south. So short version is I spent, I came back to the Providence Journal, which was one of the best newspapers of its size in the nation uh, at that time, just a writer's newspaper. I spent 13 years there and then another 13 years at the ABC affiliate where Dave Lehman worked. And then I left because, uh, we had morally bankrupt owners. I know that sounds a little <laughs> sounds a little quaint now in 2024, but I didn't like the direction the station was going. So after 27 years of doing mainstream media, um, I left. And I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I had about a year off in 2008, 2009, another bad time for the economy. And then nearly 15 years ago, we founded a nonprofit investigative website called the Hummel Report. So that's kind of the, the elevator pitch version when people ask me what my background is.
1: Well, Jim, we just had one of our major papers in Chicago, the Chicago Sun Times, go to nonprofit status. Explain to our listeners what the difference is, what that means.
7: Well, so the, there, there are a couple of different things. I have to do so, I formed a nonprofit back in 2009. Truth be told, I had wanted to do something with a, a radio outlet here, our flagship WPRO, which is the main news talk radio. There were a lot of guys like me who had been laid off. Now, I left voluntarily because we just had a bad owner, and I didn't like the direction the station was taking. But in the recession of 2009, there were a lot of people with institutional knowledge in their markets who got laid off for no other reason than they made a lot of money and they couldn't afford them. So I had originally Originally made a pitch. I do, uh, coming from a television background, I knew that I needed an internet component in order to do long form investigative video reports. And we went very heavy on the video the first 10 years. So I had really wanted to latch onto a mainstream media organization and then just provide them content that door closed in 2009. So I had a couple of friends who said, "Well, why don't you consider forming a nonprofit and then you can control your own content. Well, fortunately, I didn't know what I didn't know in 2009. It was the <laughs> absolute worst. time mean, what am I doing, for, you know, forming a nonprofit in a really, really tough recessionary time? Fortunately, having had 27 years in this market and good name recognition, we have basically we rely on individual donations. We have some foundations and we have some um uh, grants that we get, and so we've cobbled it together. That I've got to run the business, I got to do the legal, I've got to do all the fundraising. But at the end of the day, the payoff is total editorial freedom to pursue the stories that I want to
2: pursue.
1: That is, um, that's a real siren song to to journalists. I don't know if the two of you are aware of this because the news just kind of broke this morning. But um, the Chicago Tribune is not a nonprofit. It was purchased, sadly, uh, by a hedge fund, Alden Global Capital. And um, Alden has been – they've been due a new contract, I think it was for five years. And Alden won't negotiate, and when Pushed says – just talks about all the cuts they want to make in retirement, in health care, and all this other stuff – And all of the reporters for the Chicago Tribune, plus apparently journalists that work at different Alden owned publications around the country, they're all calling for a 24 hour work stoppage tomorrow. And they're asking people um, not to buy the paper. If you get a hard copy, they're asking people not to open up. The digital copies, not to click on any articles, not to engage with uh, the Chicago Tribune social media in any way, shape or form. I mean, you're you're looking, you know, you know, like you saw into the future by doing this.
7: Well, it's kind of funny because a lot of people will say, Hummel, you're really you're really ahead of the curve. Mm. I left the Providence Journal in 1995. I look like Nostradamus now, but at at the time, the (laughs) journal was making a 30 35 percent profit. Uh, Al Gore Mm. had not, you know, uh, created the internet yet. Uh, It was a privately held (laughs) company, and a lot of people said, Hummel, you're going to television. Well, I mean, well, you could <laughs> retire at the journal and I, you know, you have to negotiate a contract. It's not a union job. And I really felt that av- and Dave helped guide me into television and we'll get to Dave in just a sec, but I just, he answered some of my questions about moving from print into television and he's been a mentor over the years. So when I went to television, I really got the feeling even back in the mid nineties that newspapers were not going to be the, you know, the future. And so I love being a reporter. I love doing investigations. So I basically did my I changed mediums. I went to television. Well, and I spent another 13 years there and it wasn't because I saw the future. We just had really bad owners who were starting to infringe on my time investigating. They were sensationalizing stories. And so well, I was the face of that station and I needed to get out. So when people say, wow, you're a visionary, honestly, <laughs> it was kind of self-preservation. Uh, to get out of situations that I thought were, were going to harm my integrity and my reputation. And fortunately, I've been able to, you know, when we founded the Hummel Report 15 years ago, Joe, nobody was doing this. I mean, I to do long form video investigations and, you know, the Internet, which has killed a lot of newspapers, allows me to do what I can do now. I can do seven, eight, nine, ten 10 minute video investigations if I want and really dive into a topic. And I think the content is what really has drawn. We have a lot mm-hmm. of individual supporters who say, I'm going to co- contribute to you because I think we need good investigative journalism, particularly in Rhode Island. I'm sure, you know, I know Chicago has a reputation.
1: <laughs> hey, Rhode hey Island, I, mean, I don't know. I, don't, I think we could give you a run for the money as when it comes to corruption.
7: <laughs> Dave, what do you
6: think about that? Who's more corrupt, Chicago or Rhode Island? Well, I'm not uh, an expert on Chicago, so I don't really know. Oh, I come can, on. I can our come. former Speaker of the House is on
1: trial. The, the Dean of the Chicago City Council was just found guilty on 13 of 14 counts. Come on. We've got Rob Blagojevich. You know, how many of our governors have gone to jail? Please.
6: Well, we, we've tried to match that in Rhode Island, and we've done a good job. We've had Supreme Court justices who who had to leave office because of corruption. Uh, we had Buddy Cianci, the mayor of Providence, who ended up going to prison for five years. Uh, you know, you go right down the line. We've had speakers of the House who were the most powerful political people in Rhode Island. Uh, we've had some of them have to step aside because of things that they have done. Uh, one, uh, Just a, a point of a, a couple of Points of information here. Uh, Jim was talking about how he uh, came to ABC 6 in Providence, where I was a news anchor and at various times was a news director. Uh, Just to be very clear about this, Jim came to that station after I had left uh, I was under still considered to be decent management, but uh, you know I wasn't there for for some of what was going on that got you know Jim mm-hmm. to uh, to turn in his credentials. The other thing I'd like to mention here that would be of interest, I think, to your audience who are uh, listening to this. Um, Jim has uh, – what I've admired about Jim, not only did he take uh, chicken uh, excrement and make it uh, chicken salad, uh, he uh, he ended up uh, – by doing what he has done, he created the Hummel Report. He he does talk radio. Uh, He uh, sits in so often on WPRO radio that you might as well just consider him to be a full-time talk show host over there. He also hosts uh, the uh, public broadcasting station in Rhode Island. Uh, Their legacy uh, public information show weekly program called A Lively Experiment, which I was on until just uh, about a month ago. So Jim has, and I, I probably have missed something, but Jim has become sort of like Mr. Media in Rhode Island, and he did it, as he said, really at first out of necessity. But his quality of reporting, uh, he has gotten so many things changed that the newspapers and the TV, to some extent, who would do investigative stories, would get policy changes, would get wow. people uh, you know out of office. Jim, a lot of that is no longer happening just because of the downsizing of all media. But Jim, fearless as he is, a guy that, uh, you know, if, if I gave him a story about a friend of mine that I thought he ought to do, and, and he thought, okay, let me look at this, he might not take that on, even though he and I are good friends. Or he might take it on, but I know not to call them up and just say, how's that story going? Or, hey, can you can you be sure you get so-and-so on there? If, if I, uh, First of all, I would never do that, never, ever do that. But if I did, Jim would just say, Dave, I do the story, step away. <laughs> right, Jim? Oh, I I've got to put a disclaimer here. It's like
7: listening to your own eulogy without having to die. There is no truth <laughs> to the rumor that Dave is my first cousin. I really appreciate all these kind words. Um, Yeah, look, I think I call myself an equal opportunity ambusher, Republican, Democrat, independent. And Rhode Island, uh, there was a former U.S. attorney who called this a... uh, uh, just kind of a target-rich environment. And so I I have the benefit of having worked here all these years. You know, for years, Joan, when I was younger, I, I almost went to the Los Angeles Times. I wanted to get up and out to the bigger markets. And what I found, and in television, I had the chance to go to larger markets, but I had twins who were very young at the time. And Rhode Island is a place where you can do really good quality investigative work, but you can put your kids to, get, you know, to bed uh, at night and not have to be traveling all over the country. And so quality of life, and Dave knows this, Dave's worked all over the country. He was in Louisiana for a while, and he came back to Rhode Island. So as, as great a place as it is to be a reporter, it's also a good place to be able to, to, to raise a family and have a quality of life. And so that, that you know, I'm sorry that strays a little bit from the narrative, but that was very important to me too. I, I didn't expect to be in Rhode Island when I started out 40 years ago, more than a couple of years but this is my home, and I look at corruption a lot differently through the through the lens of a 64 year old than I did when I was 22. I used to kind of laugh, oh, he took a bribe, or oh, there was a little payoff here. Look, I put my kids through public schools. I'm worried about taxes, all these things that mm-hmm. affect me as a person. I, I am invested in my community now, and I care very deeply about it. So, at the end of the day, when at the end of my day, when I was in television, I I come home some nights and I think what what am i doing i'm at the uh, you know doing a murder the uh, live shot at the murder scene in south providence what am i doing so our tagline on the hummel report is investigative reports that get results and it's not it's not a catchy tagline as much as that's what we aim to do don't always get it done but it, like dave said policy changes we help put a, a house speaker of uh, Rhode Island in jail, one of my early investigations led to a corrupt mayor in a small city going to jail for taking gratuity. So at the end of the day, I think it's why we all got into journalism years ago. We want to make a difference. And to some people, that sounds trite. But it, it, when I look at a story come out and have an effect, I think, yeah, that's why I got into this business four decades ago.
1: I think, you know, as as corny and maybe self-congratulatory as it sounds, I think that that, I think that's the reason why a lot of people go into journalism. I I really do. And it's just so amazing uh, to have the power to, to make a change, you know, to do a story on government and then have government react by eliminating a policy or changing a law. I mean, even, I spent a lot of years as a medical reporter, and I thought, you know, it was so important that I was, you know, you could dig out the kinds of stories, you know, you could read the medical journals and find out the cutting-edge stuff that wouldn't trickle down to most people for years, if indeed at, at all. And, um, you know, there was that old joke about, you know, for a while it was like the news you can use. But mm-hmm. I think that... The very best journalism makes the world a better place, makes our government more responsible, and sometimes makes our our lives a little bit um, easier to live. And I I do want to go back to one thing that you said, though. You said that... um, You said that these days you look a little bit like Nostradamus and Dave was your mentor. So my question is, what does David look like now? Um, I mean, you know, he's a TV guy his whole life, so he probably still looks pretty. But David, would you like to weigh in there? Hell
6: no! <laughs> <laughs> you coward! Hell no! I'll send you a picture. <laughs> you know hey, the, old hey. saying, uh, the, old, the old saying. The uh, old saying is: uh, it's better to be quiet and thought a fool rather than open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs>
7: You know, Joan, one thing I did want to say, my most recent story that just came out within the last week, and I should I should also mention, I kind of buried the lead here. Um, six years ago, the Providence, a very good friend of mine who worked with, with me at the Providence Journal, and then he rose to be executive editor, a guy named Alan Rosenberg, who's actually a Chicago native, went to Northwestern before he became East back in the late 70s. He said to me, hey, why don't, why aren't we using your stuff? And I said, why aren't you? So we formed a partnership. The journal, like many companies, it's owned by Gannett now and, you know, all the financial challenges. Gannett's not Olden, but they've been doing some of the same yeah, things. Yeah, but they're still, um,
1: they're still getting a lot of grief, too.
7: Of course. It's the model of, you know, mm-hmm. jack the subscription rates mm-hmm. and down the staff. So long story short, Alan and I formed a partnership where I provide. So all of my stories, in addition to running to me, the nonprofit route, the key to it is having media partnerships in your community, because you can do all the greatest <laughs> journalism in the world. But if people aren't listening or watching or, or watch or, or you know reading your story, then what are you doing at the end of the day? So my original partnership was with WPRO radio. And now all of my stories run on the front page of the Sunday Providence Journal. And as emasculated as the paper has been, it still has a lot of juice in Rhode Island. And the most recent story I did was a proposal, a controversial proposal. It's not unique to Rhode Island, but a developer wanted to cut down 300 acres of woods to put in solar farms. And I had covered this story originally two years ago. There was a hearing that went until two thirty in the morning. I was there for all eight hours of it. They voted it down. The developer came back with a slightly altered plan, and this has played out over three nights uh, of hearings back to September. Well, I was there for every one of them. And if I had been working for a TV station or the newspaper, I'm not sure that they would have committed the time to doing it. Yes. So I did a big Sunday takeout. It was a 2,500-word piece that ran four days before the hearing where they voted. And I had two uh, zoning board members tell me off the record, after your story ran, there's no way we could vote for this thing because it it really captured – What all the residents were saying, they're worried about runoff and home values and solar and all of this. And so that is that encapsulates why I'm doing what I'm doing now is that they, you know, when it runs statewide in the Providence Journal and people are talking about it on the radio and it's and it's distributed to to a high percentage of Rhode Islanders, then people start to pay attention. And as Dave knows, public embarrassment is a very sharp tool in my toolbox when (laughs) we're reporting. Reporting on government. Uh, Government officials don't like to be embarrassed and they don't like to be shown up. And I had the the zoning board chairman call me. He's an assiduous reader of the journal. And he said, oh, my, my, you know, my name was in the front page of the Providence Journal. And I said, well, Tom, I'm glad you're paying attention. So. (laughs) So. It's those types of stories, and they voted it down. And I had a number of people call me, and you know, I'm not going to say that my story changed the vote, uh, but I'd like to—I'd like to think it got people paying attention to it, to the issue. Hey, well, Jim, that's, Jim, that's one thing David and I have talked that.
1: about. I wanted to get your input on that, David.
6: Yeah, uh, my question is: Did any of the other TV stations pick up your story?
7: Yes, and they—they they had. Um, they had been there off and on. But you know how T V is, Dave. They had to they had to cut out for the eleven o'clock news. They had to leave early. Yep. They weren't there from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And and I understand that. Um my father had a great phrase called the tyranny of the urgent. You know, <laughs> things that are so right in front of you. And look, that's television deadlines. The beauty of what I do now is I don't have an editor saying I need this next week or even the following week. I, I, of course, I want to produce as, as often as I can. But if I need to take, take an extra couple of days or a week and get it right, that's what we do. And that's the beauty of the nonprofit model for all of the, the challenges that I have with the business climate and donations and and all of the legal and the business at the I just. I get to choose what I want to do on my timetable, and we wait until the story is ready.
6: Yeah hey, Jim, I had a question about about the the finances of this thing that you that you created out of out of whole cloth. Uh, I, I know that you seek donations uh, from your audience as well. Uh, have you ever had near brushes with not being able to make a budget that would put you out of business because it is a nonprofit. Uh, you don't run any advertising. Uh, so the self-sustaining aspect of it, have you had any any uh, close calls with saying, you know what, maybe the lights aren't going to be on next year?
7: Well, it was lean in the early years, partially because of the economy and partially because we were building up donors. We rely on individual donors. You know, tax uh, is tax deductible, the donations. Um, We also do have some deeper pockets. And Dave will know these names. Alan Hassenfeld, who is part of the Astro company, you know, known worldwide, the toy company. He's a Rhode Islander. And, you know, he's he's like what you said, Dave. He'll give us money and say, I trust Hummel to go to go after what he wants. If he wants to report that Alan Hassenfeld has two left feet, I'll trust him on that. And so that's a that's a real luxury to have donors who do not put strings attached. Because, Joan, you know how some of these foundations are. They, they, all of a sudden, they they claim to be you have deeper pockets on foundations. And then they say, well, you know, can you look into this? And why are we giving this organization millions of dollars if we don't get something out of it for ourselves? So Alan Hassenfeld, and there's another guy who's a prominent business owner who, who is the head of a uh, major uh, HVAC company in Rhode Island but also a prominent businessman, they've been two deeper pockets, but they, we don't really, they, they are a constant source of income, but we're always looking for that next round of money. So Dave, the short version of your question is it was lean in the early years, but we've been able to sustain a model where I really, I've always believed it sounds maybe a little quaint, but it sound, but I've always believed that if you do good work, the resources will follow. And that's what's happened for us the last 15 yeah. years.
1: Um, Guys, uh, we need to take a real quick break here. I'm talking to uh, two storied newsmen, David Lehman and uh, Jim Hummel. We are going to continue our discussion right after this.
0: Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: And I am joined by two-storied newsmen, David Lehman, who has been a local news anchor and um, a local news manager and a political commentator. And uh, James Hummel, who you can read in the Hummel Report, hummelreport.org, all the news around Rhode Island. Guys, I'm going to ask um, uh, a non-specific and certainly not Rhode Rhode Island-based question, I want you to take a step back and look at the media, particularly the national media. I've been reading a lot about uh, Kristen Welker's debut on Meet the Press. She took it over from Chuck Todd, who seemed to be universally hated. Um, And I would say uh, her performance has at best been uneven. What is about this new sort of national journalist who sits at an anchor desk or sits in a chair across from a legislator and lets that legislator tell untruths? I'm thinking Kristen Welker and Elise Stefanik, when Elise Stefanik looked at her and said that the people being prosecuted for their role in January 6th, that they were hostages and there wasn't a peep out of Kristen Welker. And that this sort of thing really on, you know, I don't think that anybody at the local news level would sit by and let a local newsmaker sit there and tell lies without challenging them. What's going on at the national level? David, you want to start?
6: Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Interestingly enough, and as Jim is probably thinking as I am right now, uh, Kristen Walker actually worked at the station that I worked at and that Jim worked at. I don't know whether Jim knew her. I did not know her. Uh, she came many years after I was there. But uh, to your point. Uh, I've heard arguments about this on both sides. If you did a fact check on those on the other side, as as people will know, having heard me on your your show many a time, I think uh, Donald Trump is the most evil person I've ever come in contact with as a news guy or as an observer. So I am not a Trumper by any stretch of the imagination. The problem, as some people have pointed out, if you have somebody in there for a 12-minute segment and they're on the other side and they're telling and you're going to self-correct them. Uh, you're going to you're not really going to get very far into the interview. Which doesn't mean that she shouldn't have corrected that, calling them, you know, allowing them to be called hostages. That's just nonsense. Um, you know, I, I think back, and uh, other Meet the Press uh, anchors would never ever have let that go go by. Uh, a contemporary of uh, of hers, uh, Caitlin Collins, I quite honestly think she has taken. Uh, Apart, a lot of these people who come on CNN at their invitation, and they'll just stop them in their tracks and say, "Wait a minute, you know, I'm not going to let you get away with that. You, that is just simply not true, and you know that's not true. So don't say that." She could do that too. Um, I think the predecessors to um, Meet the Press would have stopped. Stopped it right in their tracks when they said something like, well, they're hostages. They never would have let it go. I, I often thought, quite frankly, since you've raised the issue with Kristen, uh, I think she is a very, very uh, appears to be a very, very nice woman, a very capable reporter. Uh, I just don't think that she's got the chops to take on that kind of a job. When you consider the predecessors that held that position, they would never, ever have, you know, you had to come and bring your A game when you went on Meet the president. Now I think it's more of an interview show, uh, and she's probably trying her best. I just don't think she's the right personality. Uh to to handle that, and you know, uh, Jim, you know, there's great feature reporters at the newspaper or on television. I've hired a bunch of them. They're good feature reporters. I would never send them out on a hard uh, nugget uh, investigative piece because I just know their personality is such that they don't want to. They don't want to, you know offend anybody or they they don't want to get on the wrong side you know
1: is it possible her orders are coming from on high chuck todd once gave an interview to somebody where he said quite openly when he was asked why he wasn't tougher on some people he said that because he's worried if he's too tough they'll never come back And I've heard this argument over and over again. Oh, if she gets a reputation of being tough on whatever Republicans, Dems, um, whatever group that person belongs to, that nobody from that group will ever go on the show ever again, which I think is nonsense. But that's an argument I hear. Do you think she is going she's not going for the jugular because she has been instructed to behave and ask questions within a certain range?
6: Well, I think I think she has a, a a bit of a unique problem in the fact that and Jim, you, you know this too, having been in the media so long. She has a problem. She's the new face, uh, and she is a quote woman doing Meet the Press. I think she may have been the first woman to have hosted Meet the Press. So she is she has to get audience acceptance. So if she comes across as, pardon the expression. Uh, uh, Well, I won't use it. Just, you know, somebody who's just really, really kind (laughs) of it rhymes with itch. Okay, we'll leave it at that. She she has to get acceptance on the air as an on air interviewer personality and so forth. So she may be struggling with trying to be uh, tough when she can be. And not overly tough, so that she gets turned off by by an audience that doesn't, doesn't like the fact that she's being mean. Because it still seems to me there's uh, this dichotomy about men and women on television. I think it's less than what it ever was before. But, you know, a, a guy can ask tough questions, and he's just being a, a really good, tough reporter. If a woman does it, she's being snarky. And that's not fair, and and we shouldn't ever want that to be the the impression that people have of, of male versus female doing the uh, tough questioning. Jim, what what do you think?
7: Well, so Dave is right. I worked with Kristen. Um, This is the 20th anniversary. She, this is amazing. Uh, She worked at ABC6 when I was there. She volunteered to to go up with me to the New Hampshire primary. You know, we covered it regularly being in Rhode Island. And she she arranged her schedule to come up on her day off. She was actually working as a night reporter, as kind of a young cub reporter 20 years ago. So she came up and followed me around, and we were there for the 5 a.m. live shots and, you know, three below weather so I've known Kristen well over the years you could tell early on that she she really had the desire she went to the Philadelphia network that was her hometown NBC 10 there and then she got picked up by the network I wondered you know Joan you ask a great question I wondered when she had president former president Trump on her first show I thought why why are you doing that and I wondered whether that was coming from higher up. Now, she did, if you remember, she did really well on that presidential debate. You remember the first one was just a disaster with Chris Wallace. And I thought right. she she, hand, she handled herself pretty well. But I asked the same question that you guys do. Is this coming from higher up? Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether that was all negotiated, whether a managing, I mean, who, who would his right or her right mind would want Trump on for your first show? Because it's a no win situation unless somebody's saying for the ratings, you're going to get it from each side. You're going to get it from the Republicans who say whatever the criticism is. And right away, you're going to have Democrats who say, why why give him that platform? So I wonder the same thing that you do. I think you can fact check. But I agree with Dave. If you're having somebody on for a for a 10 or 12 minute segment it's not going to be anything if you're fact-checking them in real time the whole time. I do think it was a missed opportunity on the whole hostage thing, and I think that was probably, in retrospect, she probably wishes that she had, had done that. But it's a very fine line you walk in the moment on those interviews.
1: And you guys both know this, and I know uh, David believes this, that if indeed, like say for that first interview with Trump, if there were ground rules either given to her by management or given to her by the Trump campaign, those should have been disclosed. You know, she should have said, you know, well, our next interview is with Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump. he these are the guidelines. These are the guardrails that we've agreed to. So you knew going in. But but, you know, like I see, I see her and you don't know where it's coming from, because there are times when I think, dear God, this is a network show. Has no one given her any research? Has she give, been given no preparation for this interview? Um Because, you know. There are things that seem really obvious that should get even the smallest amounts of pushback that, I don't know, maybe she just gets tired. Maybe it just gets to be too much. Or, and I've experienced this, maybe because she's new to the job, maybe she's scared. Maybe she's... Worried, You know, because I'm sure there have been people that have, you know, said, oh, you know, we're going to give you this shot. But I'm sure there have also been people that have that have undermined her confidence. I've heard that happen from women over and over again. Oh, you're doing that. They're giving that to you. And you start to think, well, you know, maybe I'm not good enough or, you know, the. And there's yeah. if if you're going to go after somebody like like and I'm not talking about in a mean way. I'm talking about just holding somebody's feet to the fire. First and foremost, you have to have confidence. You have to have confidence in what you're doing and how you're doing it, and you have to know you are right. And sometimes that kind of confidence takes a while to grow. Oh, yeah, I've never yeah, understood. I, yeah. Go, Go ahead, ahead.
6: Jeff. No, you go. Dan. No, I, I absolutely agree with you that uh, it does take a, a little time, no matter who you are. Uh, you know, I'm sure Mike Wallace, uh, uh, in his earlier days on sixty Minutes, I'm sure there were times that, that he had self doubts. I mean, you know, he also, I think, had some some psychological problems to deal with. On his own, so I'm sure he, you know, kind of the imposter complex. If you're Mm -hmm. familiar with that, you're always afraid that somebody's going to discover that you're not really all that good at what you're doing. And I think we we probably all have suffered from that from time to time. But uh, going back, if, if. Joan, if if she would have, would have said, well, we've got some guidelines here, that would have undermined the whole reason why they wanted to have Trump on as a big splash. It would automatically look like mm-hmm. she was yielding. So she couldn't have done that. Uh, I just think, you know, there, there's in, in marketing, it's called a – if you're putting out a new product or a new business or whatever, they refer to it as a soft landing. You go out there and you, you start uh, relatively simply – so that you can get the feel of it before you really do something major and then screw it up because you, you didn't know yeah. exactly what to do. And, and you know, they would have been better off to have held Trump off for probably, you know, three or four weeks or so. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what they're thinking is. They, they wanted that for the prestige of her, of her debut, I think. But, you know, that could backfire uh, because he's such a such a, a quantity that nobody wants to deal with.
1: Yeah. And
7: I've also uh, I never I've never understood this whole. Oh, they're worried that they won't come back. It's me. Yeah, it's me. the mm-hmm. People yeah. like you wouldn't have 20 other people lined up to want to come on. Hey, if you don't want to come on, fine. I'll,
6: I'll interview somebody else.
1: Yeah. Well, also
6: that's that's not new. I mean, the Republicans, by and large, don't go on MSNBC. Uh, many of them won't go on CNN. Although I think it's less less with CNN than it is with MSNBC. So MSNBC doesn't get a lot of a lot of the people they'd love to have. And you know what? MSNBC seems to be doing just fine.
7: You know, but I always respected Chris Cuomo before he had the meltdown at CNN. He would bring on prominent Republicans, and they would tee it up. And I always found, as opposed to, you listen sometimes to MSNBC or Fox, and it's just, you know, it's all in an echo chamber preaching to the choir. I mean, you know, Sean Hannity's never done a tough interview with, in his life with a Republican. I mean, please, it's just brutal to listen to.
2: But, but yeah.
7: you would listen to Cuomo, and he would bring on, like like, Senator Kennedy from Louisiana or yeah. somebody else. And they'd have a constructive conversation. And I think that makes for really, really good TV. Yeah.
6: Yeah. I think I, so, too. I, I agree with you. In, in, in all fairness to, uh, to, uh, Walker, uh, I, I have watched her, uh, since then. And I, I have seen her, uh, interrupt somebody who is, you know, you ask a question and they give you five talking points that have nothing to do with the question that you asked. And I saw her trying not to be impolite, but being doggedly interrupting and saying, but I was asking you this. So I think she may have gotten either some coaching or some lecturing or some advice, uh, but I think she's trying to do it. I mean, that's a, that's a tough, a tough uh, program. Wouldn't it have been nice the if oldest... she'd
1: have gotten that before it started? Um... Well,
6: I will say one other thing here. As, you know, somebody who I really, really think is very good, it's my, my, probably my favorite show of the week, is Real Time with Bill Maher. Now, I could... I could do with a lot less of his vulgarity, believe me. No, I, think- I used to
1: watch him until he just became an angry man. Every show, it was like he was angry, the angry man. He used to be funny. He used to be cogent. He used to be on point. And then he became really full of himself. Like somehow I've always gotten the impression that, you know, he believes he's just smarter than everybody else. And we should be so grateful for his insights and his wisdom. <laughs> I just uh, uh, let's take a break. OK, I'm upset.
6: All, right, all right. OK, all right. Let, let me make my point when we come back. Cause I want to finish this. Okay. Uh, you'll probably like you'll probably like my point.
1: All right. Um, we will return right after this.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820.
1: I'm talking with longtime journalists David Lehman and uh, Jim Hummel. And when last we went to commercial break, I was having a fit because uh, David started talking about Bill Maher and I kind of. Well, anyway, David, continue, would you please? Yeah.
6: All right. All right. Now, uh, my, the point that I was going to make about Bill Maher, aside from the fact that I, I just you and I just disagree about that, but what, where I was disappointed with Bill Maher, he will land these guests that people think would never, ever go on a show. And I'm thinking of uh, Steve Bannon. I'm thinking about uh, uh, Elon Musk. And there were a couple of others. I, you know, I, I'm just phasing out on being able to remember who they are. Bannon just, you know, just walked all around or walked over him during his interview at the beginning of the program for, I don't know how long it goes, maybe eight or ten minutes. Uh, you know, Bannon just, they just shucked and jived. And I thought, Mark, for crying out loud, you've got Bannon on the show here. And that's when Bannon was in the news almost every day. And then Elon Musk he had on probably two or three months ago. And then uh, he, I mean, he was kissing his tail uh, that would have made even, uh, you know, some of the former Trump administration officials blush when they went to Mar-a-Lago to kiss uh, Trump's butt. It was just absolutely, uh, he just created sainthood for Elon Musk. And I think you got to be very careful with Elon Musk. Uh, you know, he's a very gifted person. But I was just, just amazing. When he gets some of these really good people, I don't know whether he just gets uh, all by the fact that they agreed to come on his show, but they were some of the worst interviews I've ever seen him do. And I think he does really good interviews and I think they're entertaining as well as informative.
1: Sometimes he does, um, but I have seen him do too many interviews that left me shaking my head. And I, and I And over time, and you know, David, we know we've talked about how, especially people who are on camera, You know there was the rule of thumb that I was always taught that if you don't air check yourself, if you don't actually turn around and watch a recording of yourself, that over time you get to be like almost a caricature of yourself. And I think that Bill Maher has become a caricature of who he once was. I I used to find him.
6: He doesn't watch it. He doesn't watch his own shows. I heard him say that the other night. He does not. He hates watching himself, so he doesn't.
1: Yeah. To your point yeah I think so too um guys I want to play i know we're we're getting toward the end here, but I wanted to play with you an interview. This was a local reporter in Miami, a gentleman by the name of Defeed who was uh, talking to uh, one of the congress people uh, who a Republican congressperson, Maria Salazar, who was going around her district taking credit for all of these new uh, projects that she uniformly voted against each and every one of them. And here's, it's just really interesting. He's not combative, but he keeps at it. Listen to this.
7: Last month, you were at FIU and you presented a check for $650,000 to help small businesses at FIU. But you voted against the bill that gave the money that you then signed a check for and handed and had a photo op, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023. Right. You voted against that bill.
8: I I, right now you have to give me more details, but I do know that every time I have an opportunity to bring money to my constituents, I do so. I just did four hundred thousand dollars. But look, you, you voted against you voted against the Chips and Science Act, right? Listen, I, right now I need to. I need to ask my staff. But what not we look you, at the forty million dollars that sir. I have brought to this community? No, what's, what aren't you right. proud of me? Aren't you proud of the forty million dollars I much, brought? But how aren't much? Aren't you proud that I wrote the Dignity Act? Haven't I? I need, let's talk about the Americas. Wait, Act. wait, wait. wait a second. Let me. One second. Tell me. The money
7: that you talk about, the forty million dollars that you bring back to the district. Sometimes that money comes from bills that you voted against. You voted against the CHIPS Act, and yet you praise the fact that the South Florida Climate Resilience Tech Hub is going to be started in Miami, right? You voted against the infrastructure bill, and you talk about all the money that comes back to the airport. So at the same time that you're taking credit for the money that you bring back to the district, in Washington, you're voting against these projects on
3: party line votes.
8: Listen, I that was I think last cycle. I cannot really remember right now, but just look Let's look at the America's Act, which is what I'm going to vote. just so You don't want like. to
7: explain why I, you voted really against I really can I mean,
8: right now and I'm not trying to be a politician. There's so many bills that I've introduced that I know that no, no, many of them No, these are bills that you voted against. That I the, understand. And but it's okay. These sometimes I vote bills. and sometimes I don't. But let's look at the positive. Let's look at the 40 million dollars that I've brought. <laughs> Jim DeFeed, wow. CBS
1: Miami.
2: Oh, Let's give this man a round of applause. Wow. Good for that, was mm-hmm. that, was that was a master
1: class.
7: That was a master class. Yeah. Now that was so. I assume that was a pre-arranged interview, right? They were doing. It that was. By they Zoom do a show
1: something? called Facing South Florida with Jim DeFeed. It's the local CBS News Miami station.
7: Well, she's not going to want to go back on that one, is she? <laughs> <laughs>
6: Well, I don't well, you know, the funny thing, that, you know, the funny thing is that there are a lot of Republicans, and this is probably true with Democrats as well, but uh, it, more of the focus has been lately on, on the Republicans, and especially on these uh, very generous acts where bringing money back to the community like infrastructure, where they absolutely stood up in Congress and voted against it and mm-hmm. spoke against it, and then came back and bragged about the money they were bringing back through uh-huh. that act. I mean, I mean, you know, that's the reason why people just think politicians are just worthless, and and unfortunately, there are many examples of that.
7: Joe, you nailed it, though. He he kept his composure and, mm-hmm. you know, kill him with facts. And, you know, as Dan rather famously said, the camera doesn't blink. And I think when, I mean, one of the reasons I've done the ambush, interview, the reason I asked whether it was set up, I've done a lot of ambush interviews over the years, and I know the answers to the questions. I'm not going in on a fishing expedition. So when I ambush a politician, and I give them the chance to talk to me, and if, it, if they don't choose to, then we do it. I like to say we do it the easy way or the hard way. The whole reason we're doing that is to see their reaction, and I I'm, was really impressed with his level-headedness. And he kept chipping away, kept yep. chipping away. Kept, right. And she's like, and, and I mean, you come away from that interview saying you don't know what votes you took, and
1: mm-hmm. th- and then can't
6: go
7: the. Well, I can't remember. Positive. I can't
1: remember. I have to ask my staff.
6: Oh please! I I think she ought to be tested for uh, early dementia.
7: Uh, it was that was bad, but <laughs> well, I mean, guys, I think. Yeah. Uh, but I do. He didn't get excited. He just kept. Right. He her just with the
1: kept at it, and that's yeah. the kind of uh, that's the kind of reporting that I think needs to be celebrated. As is all of the reporting ever done by David Layman and Jim Hummel, who um, <laughs> I've had a great time talking to, and I I hope will join me again in the very near future. Will you guys come back? Oh, no, David, you, you, uh, Dave, been, well, you I, got
7: my phone number now. Joe, you, have, you have to call me. You know where I live. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, David can't get away from me. I, I track him down all across the country, wherever he is. But, Jim, you know, I've got to make sure I got to be nice to you. So uh, thank you.
7: <laughs> I would Sorry, love to come in no, uh, back. And, Joan, I appreciate I really appreciate being able to spend some quality time with you. Thank you.
1: You're very, very welcome. Uh, it is the Hummel If you want to read more of Jim's reporting, uh, that's going to do it for me. Driving at home with Patty Vasquez is next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Stay safe. Have a great evening. Good night.